What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Actually Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And today we're going to be continuing our coverage of John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis it's a lecture series. It's actually 50 lectures, 50 parts long. And so far we've done 16 of them. Tonight is episode 17, Gnosis and Existential Inertia. And if you're curious to find out what that means, stay tuned because we're going to be journeying along with Professor John Verveke out of University of Toronto. He's a Tai Chi master, um, Buddhist Zen teacher, as well as a psychologist, cognitive scientist, and uh, has a quite a wide range of knowledge to share with us and to with hope, uh, assist humanity and awakening from what he has termed this meaning crisis that we find ourselves in, this time of social breakdown, sense of meaninglessness, sense of disconnection with reality, sense of domicide, the loss of a sense of home, all of these things. Yeah. Let me get us uh, up here on Mr. Facebook. Before the, I the loss of home as, you know, as what was happening during the Hellenistic period where you had many people moving you know moving from one location to the other um and it was no longer like you know you know everybody in your town and everybody in your city because you know they could be you know and particularly nowadays you know somebody who lives right next to you could be from the other side of the planet or the other side of the country or you True. know so during the hellenistic period they were going through a period of dom or yeah, I guess a period of domicide where this idea of the centralized home was losing its fixedness within the communal conscious. Right. Um, yeah, because it's been going on for such a long time in Greece. And so people are very identified with that place mm-hmm. and the feel of the people and it's just been going on for hundreds and hundreds yeah, of well, years. Well, you, you have Athenians, you have you know Trojans. You have Spartans, mm-hmm. you're an Athenian, you're a Trojan, you're a Spartan. Mm-hmm. You kind of have, you know, have or had that sense like here, like, you know, I'm a West Virginian. Oh, I'm a New Yorker. I'm a, but now it's getting every, like even particularly of recent, you know, people have been migrating around the country. Uh, just speaking of America here, but, you know, moving out of cities and moving into other areas. And I can tell like, you know, I live in a relatively not like super middle of nowhere, small town or anything like that, but still a small enough town where, you know, the 1,200 people that live there and then you see all the new people that are coming in that are more than just, you know, tourists or traders, if you will, mm-hmm. but are, you know, not what the neighbors were originally. And I don't mean that in a bad way or anything like that. I just mean like, you know, not this cozy sense of home. Now I go there and I hardly recognize half the people there anymore and it's Mm. not because you know the younger generation's coming up and finally out at the bar it's like literally like who are these people and where'd you come from (laughs) like you're cool i like you now i have to learn a whole bunch of new names and figure out a whole bunch of new stories you know new people yeah Yeah. whole new people which you know can be distressing particularly if it's in mass on a large scale large scale scale. where everything's getting mushed up and shaken around you Mm. know and you know, and if say you're not in, or like you've, like you know, it, this is happening like in Britain and in, in like particularly London, 
um, with the, uh, what do you call them, the, the Cockney mm-hmm. people, which is considered a subset of English. Their neighborhoods are no longer Cockney neighborhoods. And, you know, there are people that are dealing with, and, you know, I've listened to a lot of them speak up, be like, I don't know anybody here. It doesn't look the same as what it was. It, it's not the same. And, you know, you can say, oh, they're racist and bigots because it's different people. But no, it's like literally they're what they knew. Their home is now vastly different. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like living in a small town and then it gets really developed. Like I remember this, you know, in Jefferson County was very much like this. You know, when I first moved here, it was cow fields and apple orchards. And then all these development homes Quaint, just started. Small college town had its little bit of influx well you know and i was i was in charlestown and charlestown you know it was just tall, like the biggest thing that we had was the racetrack right and then it, something started to happen and a bunch of houses were being put up and now it's to the, the point where if i don't go to charlestown it's the DC metro sprawl spreading out yeah and if i don't go to these you know these towns and places have been before when i come back i'm like what the hell is this place like this right. is completely different you know mm. it's kind of sad a, a little bit you know and i mean like sentimentally sad not like circumstantially sad you know because you know frankly charlestown has gotten better through right. all this but i go back and it's like it's it's not the same it, you know i you know like i go there expecting to be like oh yeah the old family home and all this stuff and it's just like so vastly different Mm-hmm. Even the tiny, even tiny little Tater Hill, which I grew up on, is like you, know, you go to the backside of that, and now there's like new houses being mm-hmm. built on the backside of it, and that's you know that's where all like you know the poor folk and their old you know family homes were, and now they're like family homes are gone and, and new places put up, and so you have new people from different states and city yeah. areas coming in. The culture is starting to change a little bit. Well, and I wouldn't like now. That's this I, isn't I, even I, close to as radical as what happened in Athens and Greece. Yeah, and where I, for hundreds of years they had molded this particular mm-hmm. very open way of living with one another, but it was their way of doing it. Yeah, and they experienced this influx of new peoples. Yeah, and and also a, in these a, ancient a, times, and and there was major disruptions as people learned to get along, different cultures learned to what, remarry, and, and losing a lot of people too. You know, it's like say, you know, if you're young and have the traveling spirit, you go and you disappear, and it's not mm-hmm. like you're no longer having the you know child inheriting the house from the parent that was inherited from the grandparent, mm-hmm. and it, you know, you're now on the other side of you know the world. Like back in that time, the world wasn't nearly as huge as it is now or nearly as small as it is now, depending sure. on how you look at yeah, it. Yeah. But still, you know, you're like somewhere else and then maybe you're not coming back home. So then what happens to that like mm. inherited home? That, sen- that deep sense of home. And yeah. another aspect of the domicide is an understanding of why we're here and how we fit into the cosmos mm-hmm into this larger story and this larger world. Yeah. And when different gods, people's different beliefs come in to contact, then th- it can be disruptive for mm-hmm. both peoples involved as they learn how their gods can get together or their cultures, their belief systems yeah. can yeah, try yeah. and calibrate in relation to one another. And I think that that takes time, you know, it's, you know, beautiful things happen, you know, look here in the States and we have this beautiful mix of culture that's been going mm-hmm. on for the last few few hundred years, and it's helped us mm-hmm. invent jazz, soul, rock and roll, stand-up yeah. comedy, Hollywood movies. Well, Hollywood is not what it used to be, but the film industry or the yeah. you know the, the art of film in general. Yeah. Uh, it, but, I mean, um, among those, jazz, soul, and rock and roll, I think, are probably our greatest exports to this planet. Yeah, and I think the way you described uh, 
hip hops in there too. And that doesn't happen without all of our cultures mixing. Yeah. And you know, like I think you explained domicide as far as what we're feeling, get a little bit better than just losing a home as in a place, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, cause it's, there's a, a home, deep, yeah, go ahead. You know, home is also how you feel shared, like you belong. Yeah. yeah. Shared sets of beliefs, shared sets of under interpersonal understandings. Cause you can have home shared traditions, shared, yeah. And there's shared belief systems. I mean, they're as fundamental as how did reality come to be and how are we supposed to act and what is our God like? Well, and also like, those are very deep fundamental know, things, local lingos and inside jokes and other mm-hmm. stuff like that too. And you can, you can have home in internet spaces that are completely mm-hmm. non-physical as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with different communities, if you communities, will. Communities, yeah, you know. sure, sure. I was listening um, to a podcast but, last night with Rafael Kelly, talking with John Verveke, actually. And he was talking about how parkour was a sense of community. And there was mm-hmm. all these disparate youths from different mm-hmm. areas. There's French, there's West African, there's one like Italian kid. And they all were kind of latchkey kids from different parts of the world that met and became close because they invented, literally, these are the people that invented parkour. Mm-hmm. And and so he's, he's telling that story about the people that invented parkour. And and how, in his own experience with his friends, it, it does, it develops a very deep sense of community and a sense yeah. of home. Like, yeah. and these kids, they didn't have great parents in some cases, or they were just in a new place and they yeah. didn't know how to relate to anybody. So having something that gave them a yeah. sense of home and understanding and meaning and purpose is was very important and helpful for them. And we're losing that right now in the world today as we have lost faith in all the prevailing institutions, be they government, be they religious, you know, the the amount, the grow, the fastest growing spiritual sect in the world right now, the fastest growing religion is actually the nuns, no religion. Yeah, the, the secular. Not, not N-U-N-S nuns, but N-O-N-E-S yeah, yeah. nuns, no religion. Well, and, and, and I think there's also a component of this that it's their is a certain forced um, component to it. Whereas like, you know, like naturally if you get diverse groups of people from different places and you let them do what they do, they'll figure it out. Yeah. There'd be some butting of heads, but then Mm -hmm. say if you want to inject certain ideas, certain new lingos, certain new um, inside jokes, ways of being and forcibly inject, well, in order to do that, you have to destroy other things that pre-existed opposed to figuring out how to meld like the gods. One god wasn't destroyed over another. They were merged into mm-hmm. something else. Mm-hmm. And what we're having right now is, you know, not getting conspiracy theory or nothing, but there's definitely an injection of false culture being put into the world that isn't real, whether it's intentional or not. Um, right. You know, and it's it's that forceful nature, I think, that is causing us the most problems because we're not doing it naturally we're not as we it out would. Together. There's well, no we're not bartering with each together. other. It's, if you don't believe this way, then yeah, then you're, you're this. canceled or ostracized, or you're termed this. Yeah, extremely. Yeah, you know, you know all the words, guys. Term. You, know, you know all the things that we call each other when we're mm-hmm. so dead set that we're right. Yes, and, and we're all becoming increasingly ideologically bound. And in those ideologies, those belief systems that we're becoming possessed, ideologically possessed by. Mm-hmm we're losing our capacity for critical thinking because we really do want to be belong. So, you know, if there's a group that we kind of identify with, we don't want to believe that it's wrong. So we don't want to hear Mm -hmm. things that are counter to it unless our motivation is to find out what is good and true for one and all, regardless of even if it 
means that I was wrong about something that I believed. And that's a tricky thing for people to come to at first, unless you realize this is the most objective way that we have. We have to try and prove our, even our own selves wrong and to challenge our own conceptions and beliefs because we're trying to find out what is conducive for long-term survival of our species, of the healthy aspects of humanity and our cultures Mm-hmm. And how do we help those things prosper? Well, that's one of the definitions of what makes more like what what makes something morally right. What is morally right is what does best for the species, frankly, yes. at its most b- yes, base and, level. And, and one and all is very important yeah. addendum to that. Yeah. What is good for one and all? So you're so you're keeping in mind that the individual is the ultimate minority, yeah. and the it's that if you want to fractionate it down and figure out how do we help minority interests on our planet in our world in our culture start with the individual you got to start with the individual because every single person's yeah. life is different they're going to all each have individual challenges well you know you, you wouldn't you wouldn't sacrifice the group for an individual we'd mm-hmm. call that evil right you know evil people do that but i think it's just as evil to sacrifice the individual for the group and you know if we didn't learn the our lessons the past hundred years of how dangerous that sacrificing individuals for the betterment of the group is mm-hmm. If there's going to be sacrifice, it's individuals deciding to sacrifice their own individualness to get by within the group for what's best for the individual and the, group, the group together. You know, because it's it's like that it, advice: it, you should love yourself so that you can love others yeah. as well as well. And you know, in, individual and group are fused together. Mm-hmm. You can't like no, no. Truly, we are indivisible in that we are interconnected. We, we truly are, and we don't realize that because we do have unique perspectives, like apertures of being that we exist through and we experience through, but we are trading atoms with everything and everyone around us all the time. We really are one thing, this cosmos that has unfolded out unto this point, yeah. and we name the different things and think of them as separate so that we can navigate and communicate. However, we are all intrinsically interconnected. Yeah, and even as, you know, even as a species, uh, and Verveke touched on this, not necessarily as a species, but touched on this idea, um, I think it was last week, um, where, you know, you can't do it alone, particularly, no. you know, the idea, it's a group thing, agape is somebody before you having love passed through them, passed into you, that you pass into the other, that makes people out of things. Mm-hmm. And this is so true for humans that, you know, we've, we've had kids that were raised, you know, like by wolves or out in the woods without humans and they don't learn how they will never be able to speak after right. a certain point. Cause their brain literally doesn't develop if they're not around other humans. Yeah. And yeah. like, and we found out, you know, in the tragedies of the last, you know, hundred years that if you don't touch a baby when it's an infant mm. and touch yeah. them yeah. regularly, they'll die. That's how important it is for humans to have each other. And mm-hmm. even an individual alone still has a relationship to the group. The mm-hmm. fact that you have to put alone means there's, well, an individual alone. Well, if the individual was just the way it was, then it would just be the individual. But no, alone, without There's the idea of others. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we are super social creatures. <laughs> and that's why we're so easily waylaid by ideas like communism and socialism. Sure, well, because it sounds there, great. There is you know? something good about, well, absolutely. I want everybody we to have enough to the eat commons. and be able to... The people should be having access to the commons yeah. and deciding how the commons are utilized and shared. And we realized that when we started to come up with our democratic republics and started to say that, you know, oligarchy isn't the way, that's not the yeah. healthiest way to run a country. Monarchy isn't a healthy way, fascism, so on and so forth. The commons must be protected and be used for the well-being of one and all. 
and the people yeah. should have choice over that. And then, of course, we are social beings. The problem is trying to create that reality through a central authoritative body that oh. inevitably becomes authoritarian. And we've seen that experiment multiple times well, and, so, and here in the states we don't have a perfect system either we just have yeah. <laughs> kind of the best thing that we've come up with yet as humans yeah. and there's various many different versions of that now in the world because it's worked so well here you see it all over europe and all over just all over the you planet know, now it is said that america is a young country and we sometimes get crapped on by other mm -hmm. countries at how young we are but we are the longest lasting country to cart to fight a revolution to become an independent nation and then we created one of the best governing structures that humans have come up with. With a very loose, uh, initially, it, we had a very loose leadership structure. We had people that were inspiring figures, but we didn't have a king over here. We didn't have some well, kind of we government, were, like a great, we had a confederacy. We had we were more anarchistic than anything else because you had your farmland and you, West, had, your, you yeah. had your neighbors and you had yeah. the people around you. Yeah. And so, like, you know, we're socialism and all of its offshoots really failed is a total misunderstanding well of and the christianity over well, here also hurt the natives well real quick let me yeah um the thing that socialism and all of its derivatives really got wrong was the sacrificing the individual for the group right and not looking to the individual for ultimate responsibility over the individual because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it's no the individual is supposed to be responsible over the group yeah well you know, that's how we end up murdering people for being Christians, yeah. Jews, Muslims, or whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're you're part oh, of this no, no, group. No. You're responsible they, for what everybody else did. It, for being intelligent, for yeah. being a, craft, and, yeah. a craftsman, for being a writer, so, for being um, a meager farmer that had managed to have a small home for themselves and their family and some food to live off of. Yeah. The, all of these people got included in the bourgeois elite, and eventually the whole thing ate itself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and the like the idea that like say like even, you know, uh democratic republics, which we are, um but you know, like even Soviet republics, there's still has to be a smaller group of people that makes the decisions for everybody else. But when they can hide hide themselves in so the word Soviet is like council. It's mm. it's a council. Mm. Yeah. So when they hide behind the stamp of the Soviet, now they can get away with, well, I'm looking like I'm helping everybody, but I'm gonna sacrifice the group for my wants. Yeah. And we can't see it because I can see when my neighbor's screwing me over a lot quicker than I can see some guy who's good. just one of five hundred people in a decision yeah. group from a central office somewhere, yeah. you know. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's oligarchy over yeah. there in, in, in Russia to this day. And it's this, unfortunately, it's the same problem over here well, but for, with a different kind of government that's been infiltrated and corrupted. Pretty much our democratic republic is, you know, it's a it's a tired imitation of what it used to be. It's now well, an oligarchy much, as well, according to Princeton much, in the yeah, 90s. I think pretty much every, every, any democracy or republic democracy or democratic republic is going to if not checked fall into oligarchy and i think the entire world the most you know advanced countries are yeah in oligarchy at this point they select few people who have most of the resources absolutely yeah corporatism and, has spread across the yeah, planet corporations yeah, have yeah. been enthroned to such a degree that and i remember hearing this fact back in the 2000s but of the top 100 economies on the planet 
the top 51 are corporations, multinational yeah. corporate entities. The yeah. bottom 49 are nations. Of the top, So that's the top 100 mm-hmm. economies on the planet. Corporations have long since become more powerful yeah. and more influential even than our, than our own nations perhaps, mm-hmm. or at least they're able to influence them in very powerful ways, and they're able to corrupt and influence elections oh, dude, they and get together, laws. And they get together every year and brag and happens. boast about we, what we they're doing. We have terms for it. The neocons, the ne- which happened, mm. you know, that, and we saw the clearness of that corruption during the Iraq war and Bush and Cheney. Now we have the neoliberals as well, which also all voted for that war. It's basically corporate, re- corporate overlords, basically corporate interests that have well, when your politicians gained sway over our politicians yeah. or have literally imp- put their own friendly politicians yeah. into positions of power. Well, and really, like, one, one will ask, you know, well, what are we to do about it? I don't think burning down this system is the appropriate way, so I'm not one of those radical whatevers, but I think the way is to That's take... That's dumb, because you got to come up with well, something better first. Take yeah. more individual responsibility mm. for your decisions. Don't shop at the Walmart if you're not yeah. if you're not for it. This is just good don't, life advice don't in use general. Use the Amazon right? if you're not for it. Find something don't other blame, than Google don't if you're not about it. Outside you know? of yourself, take responsibility. Well, because you're a part of society. We're all parts of society. Well, and, and we have created this world. This world is a reflection of us. Literally, put your money where your mouth is. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wants to talk about corruption in these huge organizations. You know, like, but they're still using Amazon. They're still using Google. They're still using, you know, all these things, and they use them more and more and more and more. And they're like, "Where did all my local well, stores go?" We're, we're doing it right now. We're on YouTube here. Yeah. And so, what do we do when we're in this situation where we have? There's so much good to yeah. humanity. There's so many beautiful things that we have done, but there are also ways that we've become corrupted, systems that have become corrupted, uh, communication channels that have been co-opted and and basically kind of formed to particular money powers interests benefits well and you know i'm not saying that they have their own ideological interests and i'm not necessarily saying that like you know don't use these things like i still go to walmart i don't like it and and start asking and we should we should actually start having these conversations in mass like i don't like my phone being made hold hold on hold, hold on just do one little thing every now and then. Be aware. Be like, oh, well, instead of buying the super cheap version that I can get off of Amazon that was made in some slave sweat labor in China or something like that, maybe pay a little bit extra and do a little bit of research to find a company that's not doing that, that sells the same product for, for a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And just do it, you know, once. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good suggestion again. because we're doing this with our media now. Uh, we are becoming the media, yeah. literally. Yeah. And independent media is becoming more popular than the legacy corporate media, CNN, ABC, sure. Fox, yeah. those guys. We're seeing replacements that are more authentic, more genuine, more honest. Even if you don't agree with them, you can tell it's a totally different style of presentation. Mm-hmm. There's actual journalism going on rather than just opinion yeah. um, reinforcement that you see on these mainstream channels. And some of these channels that, you know, that from CNN to Fox they have been fanning the flames of the division in this country and in other countries for profit. And they know it because it gets clicks. They know what they're doing when they title things certain ways. And it's gotten gross. I don't even see it as journalism anymore. Yeah, well, you know, the AI will be taking over that end of just yeah, the, right. the, Probably the crap journalism. Chat GPTs. You yeah. can ask Chat G- GPT to write you an article and whatever you want in the style of a New York Times journalist, and it will do it. But, yeah, like, ultimately, because, like, so... Last week we were talking a lot about agape, mm-hmm. 
and that is a personal thing literally in the case that it makes persons yes it's a co-creative process and it's you're allowing agape that has been given to you by your parents by say god if you believe in god or by this universe and you're carrying out that co-creative process now with somebody else Mm -hmm. with something else that's going to affect hopefully and you know people and you know so like children first start out you know their only experience of love like for themselves is the consuming love so the the eros end of love but then eventually as they mature they're able to pass it through them onto other people and so if you imagine adults coming through this revelation going from this egocentric taking the love in to actually internalizing and moving it through Mm -hmm. so you're having a shift from the egocentric position of understanding which is more consumptive yes um to an actual participatory yes a profound participatory relation a reciprocal Mm -hmm. realization that is like a feedback loop that feeds back in on itself and so you're both growing through this process and this is how we participate in culture and language and jesus understood this disclosure of the right kind of love of agape as the way for us to co-create mm-hmm. with God. It's, that's what makes it possible. Agape humanizes us from mere animalistic instincts. Mm-hmm. And we discussed uh, last week the word uh, forgive, forgiveness. Mm, yes. And it has it has two modes to it in my mind. There's the before, you know, the giving before, say, it is asked for or just the giving before for the sake of doing it. And that's what, you know, Jesus, when the, he forgave people so they can be forgiven and given before. But then there's also agape is for, F-O-R, giving. Yes. It's something, it's It is give. forgiven. Yeah, love is to be given. It's never yeah. to be expected. It's a very painful thing to try and expect love. Yeah. It's It's not something that one never needs to expect because we create it within ourselves. And and so with forgiveness is to to give before even if there isn't a slight. So there doesn't have to be yeah. to still be forgiving. Yeah, it's a sacrifice to, of your own egocentrism on behalf of another's growth into wholeness. Mm-hmm. As Verbeke put it that way, and I really like that. Um, ah, okay. Sacrificially extending our capacity for individuals to experience their own kairos, their own turning points. And that's what Jesus represented, as he described in the last episode. Jesus represented a kairos, a turning point in time. At the right point in time. Yes, that was embodied in a human being that was trying to share that kairos potential, that rebirth potential, just like Buddha Mm -hmm. was talking about rebirth and awakening, Mm -hmm. remembering. It's the same concept. He was trying to share this with people as well. So we talked. And they, they did it in a communal fellowship kind mm-hmm. of fashion. Yeah. Also. Um, so we talked about Saul mm-hmm. um, in mm-hmm. his revelation. So Saul was a Jew and a Roman, and at yeah. that time they were very conflictory. So very the, tense relationship. The way he re- uh, remedied this was to focus very much on rules and laws. Yes. Um, and rules of behavior and conduct. And he did not like the followers of the way. In fact, he helped no. others stone Stephen, who was the first martyr yes. to death. And that's what Christians were caught early on. Yeah. 
they were called followers of the way. I think I'm just going to start calling myself that instead I love of that. Christian. Isn't that just, cool? Just because when you say Christ Christian, people are like, oh, whatever. Way. But when it's you like, say follow me, that's what you yeah, meant. Live yeah. as I am living. But yeah, so Saul was a pretty pretty nasty dude. Like mm-hmm. he was a really nasty dude. So after he helped in the killing of Stephen, uh, he got a contract to uh, go take out the followers of the way. Yeah, and he was down in, because he saw them as deeply threatening. Well, to the order that they had, sure, yeah, created. because you know, like they were making per- persons alliance. out of everybody, yeah, and in- the Jews and the Romans did not get along well. So they finally had some yeah. kind of semblance of stability going on, and he's like, "These guys are super disruptive. We can't yeah. have this." Now, but, Christians, um, this was originally a put down. Yeah, oh, you're one of those, you're yeah. those Christians, anointed ones, huh? Uh, yeah, you think you're so much better than everybody else, huh? Yeah. So Saul holds the coat. Yeah, holds the coats. Held the coats of other people. That's how he helped. And you know, I said this last week, but like, there's the evil that will stone somebody so to death. Stone but there's the reason. evil that'll make it easier for other people to stone people to death. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. so Saul's not a good dude at this point. Well, he's Saul. No, and, Saul is very ideologically possessed. Yeah, and and probably rageful and hateful too. Like, yes. in order to do that, and so that's he's resentful. Really, he's angry. To, he blames these people. And let's make examples of these people. Yeah. And so, let me go. So, even as far if he's as... not going to pick up a stone himself, he's, he's at least going to like mm-hmm. cheer on the people or help them, assist them by holding their coats. Yeah. But he goes on his journey. Yeah. And he gets struck by a bright light and it floors him. Yeah. Literally knocks him on his ass. And uh, he hears, Why do you persecute me? So he asks, Who are you, my Lord? Or who are you, Lord? And not in the sense of like God, Lord, but someone in a higher position. Um, and the reply is, I am Jesus that you, uh, persecute. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it was the guilt of what he's done, maybe he was dehydrated, maybe he was doing some travel, you know, uh, what, what do you call it? Uh, road beer, you know, yeah, like, right. you know, like doing something like that. But he had this instant where he realized what he was doing was wrong. And I think at this point too, he, he wasn't, he didn't have the intention to like go help the Christians or the wayists at this time. Um, he, you know, but he was still going there and then, you know, no, he's on his way to go destroy some people. Yeah. But he was doing, he was rescued like, you know, in his time of need and he probably was hungry and starving and traveling was very dangerous. They healed him. They fed him. Yeah. And he was struck blind. (laughs) There's a cognitive science side to this. Now, Verbeke likes to break down enlightenment as he's proved Mm -hmm. that we can actually measure when this happens in the brain. We see this and there's also telltale signs of when it happens and you always see this language in the scripture be they far east with buddhism and ancient hinduism or you hear further into the west here you hear about the bright light the super apparent the super salient the glorious um a voice speaking out of nowhere in in this high state of consciousness where there's an ontonormative experience being had it's something that feels realer than real real realer than you've ever experienced Mm -hmm. so he's having quite a transcendent experience telltale language about of a of a transformative transcendent experience so yeah so now he travels to antioch and experiences care from the people that he was going to destroy yeah and then you know imagine that you know it's like imagine yourself like you know you really despise you know someone 
like really and you think they're just like you know terrible person you'd rather not be around them and you think they're awful and whatever yeah these are horrible people but that's that's the person that picks you up on the side of the road and helps get your car off the side of the road after you find out that the prejudgment the image that you held of those people was not accurate at all yeah well that's that's why we while we used to you know warn each other against prejudice oh yeah like overgeneralizing, like thinking all, all people are a certain way because they're a certain sex yeah. or skin color and, and unfortunately yeah. or racism you know, or, or bigotry or even you know like uh political alignment you know mm-hmm. seems like the people that should know better are now the ones that are like oh those rightists or conservatives and stuff and i'm it's really strange to see the left act like the right was in the 80s yeah and you know <laughs> I, I <laughs> about may- certain things and and I made a joke to a fr- friend of mine recently, uh, and he got it. And it's not really a joke. It's true. But, you know, I told him, I was like, you know, not too long ago, I used to have to defend the blacks and the gays from bigoted conservatives. Right. Now I'm defending conservatives from black and gay conservatives. The people who, well, the people <laughs> who cases. speak for the blacks and the gays, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, isn't that funny? And just in a few years, and that, that's the danger of, you know, thinking you're right. To the point that you're not even questioning. Yeah, and you're like, well, of course they're horrible people. They're a basket of deplorables. So-and-so on the TV told me. To to paint an entire group of people with such a broad generalization dismisses the complexity of every single individual. And it's never accurate to overgeneralize that way. Now, our brains do this so that we can navigate through reality. So, Mm -hmm. like, we think those are rocks. Those look like sharp rocks. Be careful walking on them. Things like that. But when it comes to people, when it comes to our interactions with one another socially and psychologically, mm-hmm. we don't have to compare. I love this yeah. quote by Christian Murdy where he suggests, what would life be like to live without an ounce of comparison? comparison yeah. Well, and, and interestingly enough, people are more variant within groups than – so they're more different within groups than the groups mm-hmm. are different themselves. Mm-hmm. You can do this with any, yes, with any breaking absolutely. down of yeah. groups. Like oh, yeah. look at a knitting circle. Okay, they're all knitters, and a knitting circle is very different than, say, like uh, a group of blacksmiths that get together and blacksmith together. Obviously, it's knitting and blacksmithing, but the people within those groups are way different, way different. than, yeah. well, knitting and blacksmithing are creative things that you do physically that you create things that we use. Mm-hmm. So there, but whereas, like, you know, you'll have, you know, you know, old Gertrude, you know, and then Jane over here and all them, and well, Gertrude and Jane sometimes yell at each other yeah, because one's an atheist you know, and one is uh, yeah, hardcore and then, Catholic. And then you have like a super hippie person over here and another all in the same group. So yeah. it makes no sense to Pre-judge make broad group, group yeah. judgments. Yeah. Now, mind you, if it's you, a very shallow if way you see a bunch of people around. walking around like this, like scratching themselves. and It's overly simplistic you, and it's you can, easy to hate when you do that. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's yeah. easy to hate, condemn it. It's also what we do when we're getting ready to inflict violence on sure. one another oh, group yeah. to group yeah. we start yeah. to dehumanize sure. the other group yeah. and yeah. say all of those people over there are so and so blanket insult term or i saw one person who fit some of the characteristics of a group so therefore all of them like say with a conservative you know like there's that you know the the a-hole with the big truck and the boom boom and care blair and leonard skinner that's just ignorant and awful but not all guys with trucks that like Leonard Skinner are like that and at are all. conservative like that. So yeah. it's just like, yes, there are, but you know, like you're kind of missing out on some good times. If you, you know, you know, you're driving a truck, you hit a mud, you know, big old mud hole, you know, there's a good time. There's good people on all sides of everything, but there's also, yeah. there's also buttheads on every side of things. 
Mm-hmm. And there's extremists on both sides as yeah. well, and we got to be wary of that that extreme fundamentalism but, to where people become a little bit cultish even sometimes. And, you know, it, this works with the next part in my notes. We are all at war with agape. We think we can just do it ourselves. Well, just our group has the right way, and we can do it ourselves, or just me. I can do it. I don't need, I, you know, I don't need to hear anything from anybody else. I, you know, I got this. I could do it myself. And I mentioned, you know, the manosphere and, you know, MGTOW and all that stuff. The dangers within that is it's so hyper individualistic that it sacrifices the group. And it's for the too self. certain. It's closing itself you off know, from some yeah. from love. And then you can you know you can go the far you know the far other end you know with the pre love ex- well, extreme. Well, I mean the like um, the like the alphabet, oh, the, yeah. the, the alphabet. I don't you know the LGBTQ plus IA two uh, IAA and all that stuff. It's literally it's getting longer and longer so it's fracturing people down into mm-hmm. well we're in this group, oh, so much but now we have now yeah. well now it's, i'm concerned for my gay i'm not and just, lesbian and bisexual brothers and sisters because now they're actually well, being demoted well no but like let me get this out. a lot of their rights let, are being let, challenged let, let me get this out though it, it's, yeah go it's, ahead it's, go it's ahead it's important oh yeah it's, you're, you're talking go um we're in this sense we're creating so many smaller and smaller fractured identities that now there's no longer an individual or a group because the individual is now broken and down into four or five or six or seven or eight or 20 billion different little identities opposed to really it should be you know um you know i'm a son Mm -hmm. because i i'm the male child so that's Mm -hmm. one identity and i can identify with that with my family Mm -hmm. i'm also a friend Mm -hmm. and a Mm co-musician but we're when we continuously go further and further and fracture it down, you lose the sense of the individual and now you're just atomized pieces conglomerated together. And it's, it's dangerous. And you know, it's not just, you know, the LGBT people that do this. We do this as teenagers too, you know, I'm just kind of in this kind of, you know, if you want to do this in all of our group. And so it's sad that that is not an actual community. Yeah. There's a lot of disagreements going on. Like, you know, there's a, there's, here's a story and I won't, name the time and the place or anything but this happened recently but there's a group of lesbian women that get together for like a folk festival and they play music together mm-hmm. and they just want female mm-hmm. born people to be there xx chromosome yes yeah. xs chromosome to be there yeah. and this wasn't a problem until this most recent year yeah. and then there was a huge protest and from the t's and the q's or advocates of the t's and the q's for instance and so what are we doing what are we doing? Our, and and again, like now we also see woman sports being infiltrated by guy, by XY chromosomes sometimes, which are, are going to have advantage in very many well, cases, that's especially da- strength. That's the danger of also changing the definitions of words mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. mushing them up. You know, 1984 uh, warned us about this. So, you know, like cha- yes. cha- changing, yes, not just did. changing the meaning, but making it so it no longer has meaning. Mm-hmm. Double speak. Yeah, so if mm-hmm. you if you are going to say have identifiers, we must be very clear. Yeah. Like it's not it's not good enough to say, oh, they like mm-hmm. who's they though? You know, like but them or those. Okay, but who are you specifically talking about? Oh, I'm talking about those guys literally on the corner there that are assholes to me every morning. Mm. You know, like literally those guys. You know, being more descriptive instead of less descriptive. Yeah, but it's weird. We're in a spot. what is the specific thing that somebody is doing that is offending you? But what's really funny is we're getting more wordy. But the words don't make any more less sense specific. for how we're yeah. described. So we've got yeah. more words to be less specific. Yeah. It's very yeah. odd, yeah. you know. And I'm not getting down on anybody. I, I was I was the Q kid back in the day when they just if you're a little weird they'd be like queer, 
you know, and it yeah. used to be a, yeah. a, a derogatory term towards people. So yeah. like, you know, I always stuck up for the little weird theater kids and all that stuff. But what's happening now isn't a matter of acceptance or this, that or the other. It's a matter of controlling people, either people who are, say, in the communities themselves or people who are on the outside. And it's just to control our minds, to keep pitting to, us together. Well, sure. To, it, it is being used that used that way, perhaps. And Oh, no, for sure. Uh, it's, but, but the people that are involved in the supporting of these groups yeah. are merely trying yeah. to help do something sure. that they think is well, yeah. good. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's how we get got. We were like, okay, I'm that's trying to do something good. That's how we get got. Yeah, yes. it's like I'm trying to do something good, but then I, and I'll use these words, mm -hmm. which if, like, say you're a person in the crowd at an activist event and you say these words, there's a different meaning when you say it than when the people who really know what these words mean, like mm -hmm. the way they use it. Like, so transformative, that sounds like a great thing. But if you hear professors other than like talking about literally like transformative experiences, when they're talking about like transformative action for society and stuff like that, watch out. Cause they're not using that. They're talking word. about destroying. Yeah. yeah. And breaking. Yeah. There's um, no idea of what to transform into. Oh, uh, what's, what's the German word? Unless it's um, communism, I guess, but well, that, that, that is only slowly admitted by some people that actually believe in it. And the other ones are just kind of on the fence, not knowing exactly where to go there, but well, it's, it's just don't want to be a part of the group. So green with most of what's happening being quiet where yeah, they don't understand. If I could be conspiratorial, I, I would say it, all this is to usher in the dictatorship of the proletariat the awakened class i think the confusion around sex and gender and race yeah. is definitely being used as a part of information war uh, well yeah and like because you know it, back, it it can be used by certain power structures well, back to the, try and further divide and cause cause infighting amongst us because we actually have the most beautiful mel melting pot on the planet yeah well and that's the one thing is the german communists that is what made america great so we should love each other for yeah. our differences we shouldn't be infighting so much but we are being yeah. tricked into infighting even within the lgbtq community right which yeah. you would think we will be getting along even within america we should be agreeing on the ideals of america well, if, if you of, look at what's happening with conservative media particularly like independent media and sub-independent media that's yeah. also fracturing down to an infighting as well yeah. Um, yeah. If there's aspects of America that we can prove are corrupted, yeah. then we should be able to agree on that by yeah. looking at the proof together objectively and then trying to find a way to resolve it as a people yeah. and recognize that the real battle is not left versus right. It's the proletariat and the middle classes against the um, high level oligarchy. The plebeians, not the plebeians. proletariat. Excuse me. The proletariat is the awakened ones. So the awakened ones in, in 1984, they called them the proles, the proletariat, which just means poor people. Okay, well, class. so the proletariat in communism is yes. In, in, oh, oh, on communism, they well, call them the awakened ones. Yeah. So when they the proletariat are the ones who are going to have a class consciousness awakening mm -hmm. and then usher in the dictatorship of the proletariat to uh, yes, then yes, yes, usher yes, in yes, socialism. Yes, yes. So the german communists that came to america and founded what uh, what is it the um uh man mine's blanking but they're you know it was an inter institute of thought um they they realized that america is so class fluid that the proletariat can't be a class you know so it's mm -hmm. not you know the bourgeois versus the the plebeians on the bottom mm -hmm. so what do we do in order to usher in this um, dictatorship the proletariat to then get to our socialistic end mm -hmm. um well 
we have to figure out other ways to separate people. If you're in a society that's very class mobile, like America is, because we used to, I think we still are to a certain extent, very meritocratic. Yeah. Like we learned that like judging people on their skin color or their sex or stuff. No, we want the best of the best of the best of the best. Best doctor doesn't, doesn't matter what he looks like, what he believes, as long as he's the precisely good human being yeah. of course and, you know, you know the best asshole, astronauts but... the best pilots yeah. we want the best of the best so what what do you have what you have to do is you have to fracture people down and get them to care less about the merit of people and more about well do they look like me or do they not look like me you do want to start you... teaching them equity instead of equality yeah and that's yeah. that's dangerous and how often do you hear and not not to go on a tangent but this stuff's been bothering me but you'll hear black and brown bodies or it's so good to see somebody who looks like me in a lead role or something like that. That's very destructive. And on the surface, it's like, oh, well, yeah. But no, if you really listen to what they're saying, though, black and brown bodies, they don't care about the individual. It's just the body. Mm. Like this this MLK statue, the embrace, really pissed me off. Not because it looks like they're holding up a schlong, but because they took the heart and the mind and the love out of it. And now it's just two arms grasping onto each other. Hmm. So they've ruined and perverted this, just something as simple and beautiful as an embrace hmm. by removing the core of what is being Martin embraced. Got, got it, man. He, he understood agape. Yeah. And he, he passed it on, you know, there's, and there's a reason why he, he was so in powerful and his movements really another. worked, you know, yeah. It's not just the poor people, both black and white, coming yeah. together and recognizing that we have been infiltrated by a demonic suction tool, as he called it when he was referring oh, to the yeah. military-industrial yeah, complex. Yeah. Oh, yeah, demonic The business of war that has taken over our country, the yeah. business of war that Thomas Paine warned us about early in our country's mm -hmm. founding. He's like, that there are men in all countries who get their living by war is as shocking as it is true, but it becomes all the more unpardonable when those men seek to sow discord amongst nations to further enrich themselves. Thomas Paine, back in the 1700s, man, like, on point. And so we had that problem already in early America. We saw that there was a challenge of moneyed powers that were trying to put themselves in the position of, of influence and to be able to control and push the, this government where it wanted, even against the will of the people and the better interests of the people. And this has been going on all over the world for a long time. Oh, that's so an, we, that's we have another, to find ways to correct for this. That's because an, the no, free market is great because it allows even poor people to be allowed to trade finally and to have maybe some class sure. mobility and some upward mobility and involvement in the culture. Like we didn't used to have a free market. Like you weren't, most people weren't like trading on the open market and able to achieve any kind of, well, upward movement out of their class for it's, most of humanity and advanced civil, you know, yeah, more advanced civilization history. didn't have the idea of but man ownership and by ownership. I mean, something that's yours yes. that you're going to sustain and you're going to work on like your land that then yeah. you can hand over to somebody like your child or, and that's what we're trying you know, to figure out how to regain our yeah. sense of a shared commons, like this planet yeah. and the lands yeah. that we inhabit and that we live on together. We should be taking care of our water. It should not be polluted by local, you know, whatever, local industries. And the, our failure as stewards is what has caused this. But of course, this is also part of our growth process. How are we going to get everything perfect on the first go around? You ever played a hard video game and beaten it without dying once and just made it through the, like it, that's not how life works. That's not how evolution works. We're learning as we go. So, so we just got to be honest and, and look at what's happening in the world. How can we find ways to be 
able to compromise and reach conciliation mm-hmm. with each other well, and I, figure out these great problems together because we need all the minds that we can working together. It seems like we are going through a transformation much as Saul did turning into Paul. Mm. You know, mm. um, as a whole species, we are becoming yeah. very, very, or we're at a point where we're very destructive and throwing the stones at each other. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're also having this, you know, blast that's flooring us and blinding us and then realizing the person that I put all my hate or a group of people I put all my hate and my distrust in are actually the ones helping me mm-hmm. a lot. You know, like they call it being red pilled. It's very, very bad. You know, it's matrix and all it's that. It's a stuff. matrix metaphor. Yeah. Not not a like, you know, not blue r- versus red. red. Yeah, not blue not, versus red as in politics. Yeah, but- no, but. Red and blue pill, the but one that's going to make you It's wake the up. bitter pill that realizes, like, oh, you know, I am being like this person that I didn't really like. A good example for me is I didn't really like Russell Brand a lot, like back mm. when he was an actor doing his thing for various reasons. But I put aside a lot of that, you know, once he started doing, you know, more of his political and social commentary and then warmed up to it. And then was like, oh, well, damn, you know, yeah, you are. Yeah, Brand's crazy, on point. super liberal hippie, but you know, like you're on point and you got a good freaking heart. Yeah. and You're helping people. Yeah, and he's 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 always been that way, but he was also on, on a lot of drugs, flamboyant, and, and on, on a lot of drugs. Earlier. I think that's what but did it for me. Quit, not a... And I don't know how long ago he quit, but it was some time ago now. Yeah. And um, he's become one of the greatest political commentators on YouTube. So we're... I mean, his his stuff is great, and I love the fact that he's able to talk about everything that's going on social, socially, and politically. You know, he can talk about the wokeism and everything else that's going on. He can talk about corporatism. He can talk about GMO food products. But he does it without being left or right. He's just like this very spiritual guy that loves all human beings. We're all awakening together. And hello, my five million friends, all of us awakening together and creating a more beautiful, loving world, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes into some deep politics. But it's always from this very loving, compassionate but standpoint and i think that's very wise of him yeah and he's he's done a good job of being able being able to check his own ego while still maintaining a powerful uh, character through which to act but yeah so at this point right now i think we're just like saw we're going into the desert which is a process of radical reflection now we're really reflecting against ourselves Mm -hmm. um you know and and coming to terms with the ugly rod that is in my own eye Mm. Yes. Uh, opposed to the speck and others. Yeah, we keep I, focusing on others. And if we were all just working on be, being better people ourselves, what a wonderful yeah. world it would be. And 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 hopefully, and I think it's probably even sooner or later, but we're going to be coming out of this desert in this yeah. transformational, experiential way mm-hmm. where our understanding, and we've done it with like, you know, like media is very different now. Mm-hmm. Our understanding of how information is gathered if like you're somebody who participates in independent media and stuff like you're on it you 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 know what's happening long before you see all the legacy media picking up the story yeah and then you get to a point where you're seeing it where you see it before you know even the independent guys are are picking it up and you start to get in it um your understanding in this case as as a uh, an analogy of the news and what's going on in the world as it happens has completely transformed. It's no longer something that's fed to you. It's something that you go out and find and you're just mm-hmm. used to doing that. Yeah. I highly recommend try and find the good faith actors, find a good faith conservative reporter, find a good faith, liberal reporter, find a good faith, progressive, find a good faith, whatever, like libertarian go through and find multiple sources 
that you find to be honestly intended in their in the way that they report. You can tell that they're trying to do a good job. They might see the world a little bit differently from you, but you can tell that they're honest in their intentionality. That's what you're looking for. And then you can get a much broader view of what's happening in the world, a much more accurate view of what is happening in each situation as it's being reported. If you just watch CNN or just read New York Times or just watch Fox News, you're going to have a very radically different view from your fellow human beings. And that's that's very disorienting for our cultures and for us. And it, it, it causes more damage and destruction and pain in the world. We, we need to figure out how to operate together and make sense together again. Yeah. So the state of, you know, agopic love is essentially the, the framework and foundations of at least Western society, but it has become an ossified hard surface that is walked upon hmm. in contempt. Yeah. And so we're seeing a, a, a rebellion against it, you know, like, you know, atheists and Satanists mm-hmm. and well, the, the alphabet, not the people, but the, the weird movement, all the language behind that is actually based on inverse Christianity, the way they word things and in antagonistic towards it. But it's the Christianity is the very thing that allowed it to, to exist and allow us to be able to be like, okay, you're gay. Cool. Love you just the same, man. Yeah. Oh, you know, and all that stuff. But now we have sophists everywhere as yeah. well as sages well, everywhere whole, and figuring out who, yeah, and figuring out just... who is who. And it's yeah. not so easy too, because you know, like there are people who can say very good things where you're like, yeah, that's, that's awesome. But then as you look over time, you see how it's, you know, say this, fictitious individual is skewing things in a very negative direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to, you know, separate the sages from the sophists now because there's yeah. just so much coming at us. Yeah. And, um, well, you can tell the sages cause they're going to be telling you, they're going to be talking like Bob Marley. They're going to be talking about one love. Well, they're not going to be but, stereotyping whole groups of individuals. And well, it's hard. Enough. It's hard to say not another. Why do you think so many people have fallen for, all this junk philosophy and all this junk stuff is because they, you know, like why people fall for like, you know, the, I do yoga to get spiritual, but it's not actually yoga and all that stuff, but they, or why people get into cults. Because we've lost, a, we've lost shared moral traditions by which we can actually tell yeah. what is good and bad together, what yeah. is honest, what well, is true. It's domicile. Like you were saying, we're losing <laughs> even shared meanings and we're all in our own reality tunnels. Yeah. And we're not interested in seeing other people's points of view. We're not interested in and given their point of view a credible take we're we're holding contempt prior to investigation and that is going to cloud our objective thinking massively it's it destroys i mean this is the scientific process you're trying to just you know you're trying to challenge your own hypotheses this is how we try and check ourselves as humans because we know that we have trouble being objective so mm. the methodology here to employ then is be willing to even prove yourself wrong and your those beliefs that you're most attached to and be willing to challenge everything that you believe try and disprove it because really we want to know what is true and good for all of us together for one and all so it's it's a little bit of shift of uh, orientation but this this is this as verbeke has explained to us in multiple episodes now 
he's broken down how love is not an emotion it's an orientation yeah it's a mode of being yeah. it's an existential mode that we can take on and it's a way that we can approach reality and interact with reality and that love is this kind of agape love is an unconditional love it's a non-egocentric love it's not trying to act it's not acting out of fear and self-protection it is literally surrendering its own self-interests for the sake of others yeah. and that is a very powerful mode when when cultures start to practice that together in fellowship so i'm gonna i'm gonna jump ahead just for yeah. time's sake a little bit so yeah we're going on what, here. what paul did is paul was trying to well ultimately paul put his own shadow on god so he needed rules and laws and order and there was a very much a guilt standard for him mm -hmm. and so but God in his mind was also compassion and love. So in order to forgive our, you know, call it, you know, the original sin, but forgive us breaking moral codes, Jesus sacrificed himself so God would forgive us. And, yeah. and so Verveke's point is, you know, that kind of, that kind of, well, I'm not going to say exactly what his point, but what I gathered from his point was that kind of diminishes agape because it puts well there has to be guilt for forgiveness to happen and that's not the case that's right so how do how do we tap into all that is agape without the machinery of christianity mm -hmm. you know how to be a saint without god it's quite absurd you know but it's i think it still needs to be done because you know it's not about worshiping jesus it's about living as what he was trying like the point he was trying to like really understand the point he was trying to get at so much so that he died to get that point across yes yes this you know? love that does not envy does not boast is not self-seeking records no wrongs rejoices in truth always perseveres agape love cannot fail because we are born out of it our personhood is the result of it mm. it's what helps bring out the humanity and others yeah. around us and the last bit of my notes, and I'm, I'm going to share this because... God is agape. God but, is love. That's where that idea comes from. It's in relationship that we know and we are known. But we still have the grammar of God, but don't mm -hmm. believe it anymore. Yes. We're still using the language, but don't believe it. And that's kind of what I was getting at with now, like words don't mean anything anymore because now they mean, you know, they have infinite meaning and no meaning at all. You know, and... And I won't say, you know, directly all of it's being, you know, like pushed by some secret cabal of people that, of course, that's absurd. But it, our natural tendency is not being checked. Yeah. And then people realizing, hmm. It is a vector of attack yeah, that sure. some, some powered interest will use when they see the opportunity. Well, the poor gasoline on a flame. The river's and, not the river's not sending ships up your way to burn your city. It's just there. And the ships have figured out that there's a point at which you can go up the river and come and burn right. your city down. Yeah. You know, the yeah. river's not doing it. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's a good way to put it. But yeah, yeah. yeah so, so yeah, Saul had an inner civil war. Basically, he became Paul when he realized, that, as you suggested, that the conflict that he had within himself, because he was someone that really strongly believed in law and order, and he saw God as law and order. He put that on God, and then, and as a result, we should be condemned or we should think of ourselves as being condemned by his judgment. That was Saul's effect on Christianity because he was this guy that was very obsessed with order and law. And he had Paul's, a lot of... Tr Paul's at this point. Well, that, well when he yeah. was Saul, before he became Paul, 
So the old Saul was guilty, rejected, yeah, disconnected. Yeah, yeah. The new Paul's loving connection. But initially, yeah, I mean... But the new Paul is still corrupted by the old Oh, no, you're right. But the Saul. new Paul still carries a little bit of the old Saul. You're right, yeah. Because yeah. he did see God as law and justice and order. And he mm -hmm. comes up with this idea that we are condemned by his judgment. So yet he also loves us. So there's this weird... Yeah. paradox going on there that doesn't quite add up in this case yeah but you and know that influenced Christ christianity for centuries so. sure um and not our interpretation of yeah that. not all sects of you know christianity take the whole praise and punishment thing yeah. as yeah, literally true. as others do mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um that's something you know christianity is a multi-fractured faith yes you know you have the catholics and then the protestants and the protestants you have well, a lot. <laughs> Let's just say a lot. I mean, there's a lot of Protestant, you know, churches and Reformationist congregations and Puritans and uh, very open and liberal rock and roll band, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everything, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a big hippie Christian movement in the 60s. It mm -hmm. was pretty radical. But so, um, Christianity becomes a home as a result, though, of, of sure. how Paul was seeing it. Um for those with the sense of falling short, those who have not yet come into fullness and personhood. And so all of the dispossessed, this mm -hmm. sold Christianity even even yeah. better, even though this was kind of a misunderstanding. But the idea that Christian Christianity is for the orphans, for the widows, for, for the dispossessed, the, for the poor, it's for everybody. For all the non-persons, non-citizens. Yeah, deserves to feel and, and act in, in process with God's love. It makes it very dangerous. To yeah. those who were in power, and I, you know, I can understand why. Yeah. And Saul... that aspect of it is good, but it was his projection that Jesus' sacrifice was to satisfy God's sense of justice. That we get this idea of God as a judging yeah. ruler. That, and I, and I'm sure as we get into this, you know, next episode and further episodes talking about yeah. Gnostics, and eventually he does talk about Hegel. Yes. yes, because they because he... they thought that there was some kind of. You know, there's some kind of in war going on or some kind of disagreement between justice and agape yeah. and God. Like God was somehow contradictory. Mm -hmm. And so this was missing something. Paul was still missing something. Yeah, which, you know, like what I said before the cast. Um, yeah. You know, Albert, like, yeah. Uh, like all the, you know, none of the philosophers were completely right, but their psychotechnologies can be valid and quite useful. We're narrowing as them. we accept yeah, them right. and and, and yeah. change them a little bit and make them a little bit better, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it's like you know the 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 first the first wood drill, Wasn't you know, perfect, was actually then it, it was actually a stick a with a pointy thing, but we refined it, refined it, refined yeah. it, refined it, refined it, refined it. And now we have all different kinds, but you know, like so, Paul, to forgive him for his shadow trying to blot out the light of God. Um, you know, because I I do think that's quite the offense to think of God as wrathful, and you like some somebody has to die so you could be forgiven. Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, not it doesn't vibe with me. It's not it's not anything that's I've experienced. A misinterpretation. But, you know, but the psychotechnology he's developing, you know, to counter these two opposing. Saul and Paul's within himself are valid. Well, how do I bring this together? Okay, well, I got the story of 
you know, the story of Jesus and his sacrifice is almost a psychotechnology in and of itself. Mm-hmm. It's exapted from story psychotechnologies and metaphor. And That's exactly language. how Rebecca describes it, too, mm-hmm. with the early Israelites and the Jews, that they believed us to be involved in a cosmic narrative that we were co-creating mm-hmm. with God. So this is that idea being carried forth. And I guess that brings us up to now. Sorry, that was a long intro, but, you know, we covered a lot of stuff and tried to merge what we're learning from stuff in the past to mm-hmm. where the relevancies are to where we're at now and trying to draw parallels. And I know it's touchy and uncomfortable a lot of times, but we do have to talk about these touchy, uncomfortable things and do it with as much agopic and filial and in some cases, Eros love. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to love the experience of doing it, love the people that we're doing it with and mm-hmm. let the and love then- move through. Let the love Into move through us and yeah. through us. Carry the beauty know. forward, as my good friend Gary Burgle likes to say. So this is going to be episode 17 of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So. Uh, Gnosis and Existential Inertia. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Last time we tried something somewhat pretentious. I hope it was still valuable. We endeavored to discuss the contributions to the notions of meaning and wisdom that were made by the advent of Christianity. In particular, we looked at Jesus of Nazareth and the exemplification right, of this participatory knowing in God's uh, agopic creativity, this foregiving of personhood to others, John's radical idea that God is in fact this agape, that the, that is actually what we've always been talking about when we've been talking about God. And then Paul's radical personalization of this and how the metanoia of his own transformation is seen by him as a powerful instance of this gnosis, agape. But how that also carried with it a potential dark side in which elements of of his identity get projected onto cosmic history and the idea of inner conflict within history within God as being reflecting, reflected of and reflected in his own inner conflict between the old Saul and the new Paul, and how much this Gnosis participatory knowing is bound up with an exploration and an understanding of how our agency can be fractured, how we can be at war at ourselves with ourselves, how we can suffer. And I want to take this up because the notion of how we can suffer, how we can become at war with ourselves, how our agency can be undermined, and how much cosmic forces may be aligned with our suffering becomes a central idea amongst a group of people known, or at least called by their enemies, the Gnostics. Now, 
There's a lot of controversy about whether or not this is a useful uh, theoretical construct. It's, uh, there, there, were, there might have been some Gnosis communities. It's more, it's more apt to think of Gnosticism as a style, a, a way of thinking, like existentialism or fundamentalism, right? It's, it's, you don't go to like a fundamentalist a, a church, you belong to a, a branch of Christianity that might be fundamentalist, right? It's, it's a way uh, of orienting yourself that is not uh, like belonging to a, a particular community or a, a particular political or socioeconomic group. Nevertheless, this sense, right, of inner conflict this sense of right, losing agency, the sense of the importance of Gnosis and Agape are all made central to this style, this movement. Now, I, before I talk about them in particular, I want to reverse how I want to present this. What I want to do is, instead of trying to historically teach you about them first, I want to try and make clear to you from the inside, so to speak, what Gnosis is and how you are probably at some point seeking it or will be seeking it or have sought it in your life. And then once we get this existential understanding of what Gnosis is, then through that lens, I think it is more appropriate to try and understand the historical figures. The, the Gnostics are sort of, um, I don't know what to say, sexy, hot right now, a lot of conspiracy theories and Dan Brown kind of crap uh, around all of this. And I think that's the wrong way. Uh, you don't really understand the Gnostics right, as a movement unless you understand what Gnosis is itself. This is going to turn out to be important because I think a way we can understand the Gnostics is they are the axial revolution within the axial revolution. They are the attempt to take the axial revolution to its culmination, to its rational culmination. And they are going to provide the undercurrent to Western culture's uh, understanding of its spiritual history and direction. So for a long time you won't hear me talk about the Gnostics because like I did when I was talking about the Buddha's enlightenment and we did a lot of cognitive science on higher states of consciousness. I want to try and do some significant cognitive science before we turn back to the history. So let's, let's, get, let's our work our way into what this is. We've already got some sense of what this is. We've had a lot of discussion of participatory knowing and perspectival knowing, and Gnosis has both of those elements in it, of transformative experience. We're going to try and draw this all together. But let's work our way into this. So we've talked about a worldview, and a worldview is when you have a way, you have this deeply integrated, dynamically coupled way of seeing yourself, your agency, and seeing the world as an arena. You have this bi-directional modeling. It is simultaneously modeling the world to you and modeling you to shape the world. This mutual conformity, this reciprocal revelation. Right? So that's a worldview. 
Now, this has happened to me, and I hope something similar has happened to you. Perhaps when you're reading uh, a book, uh, a novel, or I'll use an example. I'm reading the works of a particular philosopher. Um, let's say it's Spinoza, right? And I'll be reading, and I'll, you know, and Spinoza is a profound and deep thinker, and you spend a lot of time, and you're reading the arguments, and you're you're trying to understand, and you can come to follow the arguments, you can come to follow the inferences, you can even come to believe some of uh, Spinoza's conclusions, and so you have a lot of beliefs, and they're not, they don't even have to be incohate; they can be sort of uh, systematically related together. But then something else happens, sometimes, not always, but it's happened to me multiple occasions. And it's often what I'm trying to convey above and beyond what I'm saying when I'm teaching other people. I'm reading Spinoza, and there's, it's like there's this change. I go from seeing what Spinoza is saying to seeing things the way Spinoza says. That's a that, that, like, right? Spinoza goes from something I, I you know, oh, uh, I believe what Spinoza's saying there and there and there and there about the world and about, right, about what it is to be a human being. I go from that to actually seeing the world Spinozistically. It's because, you know, Spinoza is now, to use a metaphor I've used before, is now the lens by which I'm both seeing the world and myself. I'm now living the world like as if as if Spinoza was an adverb. I'm living the world uh, Spinozistically. I my I have the perspective of what it is like to see the world the way Spinoza did, and what it is like to participate in that worldview. You get this advent of the viability, the livability of a worldview. James talks about that. He talks about the difference, William James, the great psychologist and philosopher, he talks about the difference between believing things and it actually being a live option to you. So what happens there is, at least for some period of time, right, the agent arena relationship, the perspectival and the participatory knowing are now, right, conformed to at least it seems to me to be that way, to what Spinoza had, not just what right, Spinoza said, what, 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 who and what Spinoza was and what his world was to him has become available to me. Now that's important because that, that viability, that ability to enter into a particular agent arena configuration will help me to take the next step forward, right? So, John Wright talks a lot about sensibility transcendence. And he talks about it, and it, this is based on the really important work of Iris Murdoch and just an absolute gem of a book called The Sovereignty of the Good. If you read ten books in your life, one of them should be The Sovereignty of the Good. Um, your life will be less if you have not read it. So Murdoch was trying to get 
beyond sort of the rules and reasons for morality to something much more important. She was trying to get to that viability of morality, the way in which we pay attention in such a way that our salience landscape and the agent-arena relationship is transformed such that we do the good. But, let's use Murdoch's particular example. There's a mother-in-law. She has a, she has a, a son. The son is married to a woman, and she doesn't like this woman. The mother-in-law doesn't like the woman. It's obviously the mother-in-law to the daughter-in-law. She doesn't like this woman because she finds her coarse, finds her loud, finds her kind of uncouth, and therefore beneath the sort of elegance and dignity of her son. And then, and, and, and think about agape and forgiving here. Think about agape and forgiving. But what happens here, at some point, Murdoch says, and it happens like an insight. It happens like when you come out of the nine-dot problem. The mother-in-law realizes something. Now, and Murdoch is clear about this. It's not, a, it's not a, a normal insight. Like in a normal insight, we reframe how we're looking at something. I reframe how I look at the nine dots. But what's actually happening is the mother-in-law is having a bi-directional insight. She's not only reframing how she sees the world, she's reframing how she sees herself. And these are happening in a completely interfused manner. This is a participatory change. The agent, both the agent and the arena side of the relationship are being co-changed together. So it's not a reframing of this or that. I often use this term. It's a transframing. It's not a reframing of a particular problem. It's a transformation of the whole framing process, both ends. Because what's happening is the mother-in-law is seeing the daughter-in-law not as coarse, but as spontaneous. Not as uncouth, but sincere. Not as lacking in elegance, but as possessing authenticity. And then she's simultaneously, in a co-determining fashion, realizing that the way that she, the mother-in-law, has framed things habitually has been wrong. She's having what we've talked about before, that systematic insight. Not just an insight here and here, but there's a whole system of errors that she's transformation, that she's transforming. She's going through that kind of developmental transformation that we've talked about. Wright calls this sensibility transcendence. Because what's happening simultaneously is, right, the daughter-in-law can be something that she couldn't be before, and the mother-in-law is becoming somebody she couldn't become before. She couldn't be before. These two things are happening together. Her sensibility, her whole way of participating in a worldview, an agent-arena relationship, is being 
transformed. And so both things are going through transcendence. Do you see this? Here's herself, and here's right the daughter, the object of her attention. And this is going through self-transcendence, but so is this. And that's happening in a completely conjoined way. The mother, right, the mother-in-law is becoming what she couldn't be because of how she is, right, opening up what the daughter-in-law can be. And precisely because she's coming to, right, see, have a radical insight into what the daughter-in-law could be, right, opening up that, she's opening up what she can be. It's, again, this process of participatory knowing, reciprocal revelation, right? And, and it's, you know, this mutually accelerating disclosure, this knowing by loving. It's a sensibility transcendence. So, notice what's happening here. There's a way, right, you can see that I can... I can go through a process like this and enter into a worldview. And of course, that's what Christianity was offering, right? It was offering people that metanoia of how they can go through this radical transformation in this way, opening up the world, opening up themselves, etc. Now, why is that important? Because now I want you to think of the opposite your inability to enter into or make viable to yourself a new way of being. Now, in order to get to that, let me bring up again somebody we've spoken before, Harry Frankfurt. Remember, he's the person who talked about bullshit. Frankfurt also talks about how a wonderful book, Reasons for Love, and the importance of what we care about, how much our reasoning depends on what we love, what we care about, how we're bound into an agent-arena relationship. Now, Frankfurt brings up an important notion. He brings up a notion he calls, I don't quite like this word, but to be fair to him, I can't think of a better word. He calls the unthinkable. So let me give you an example of this. So, the way to think of the unthinkable is, although you can make thoughts, images, propositions, run inferences, you can't actually make it viable. You can't go through the sensibility transcendence that would bring you into living that worldview. So here's my example. My, uh, my oldest son currently lives with me, and this, this has been such a blessing for me. I get to live with him. and spend time with him as, right, as he's building his career. Right? Now, I can think this thought. It would be great if I kicked Jason out. I can run this thought through my head. Because if I did, then the apartment would be clean. I'd have more money. I can, draw, I can imagine what it would look like. I can run the thought. Right? I can draw, drive all the inferences. But what I can't do is actually make this a viable alternative for me. It's, in that way, the thought, it's unthinkable to me. My love for my son doesn't mean I can't run these thoughts, imagine these scenes, draw these inferences. I can do all of that. What I can't do is bring myself to live in that world. It's unthinkable to me. 
Perhaps a better way of thinking about it is it's, it's not viable to me. It's unlivable for me. Now that's a good thing, right? It, so do you see how I have a, a, a way, right, a sensibility transcendence with my son that means uh, there's no effort on my part to treat him morally. And I'm not trying to be self-congratulatory. What I'm trying to say is, right, doing that thing of kicking him out, which I think would ultimately be an immoral act, is not viable to me. So right now this all sounds, this is all really great, but there's a way in which this can be twisted. I want you to now think of the negative of it. What if you're stuck? You're stuck in a worldview you don't want to be in. You want to go over there, to that worldview. But you can't. You can't go through the sensibility transcendence that will make that worldview viable to you. Because you can run inferences in your head, you can run imagined scenes, you can state things to yourself, you can make all kinds of affirmations, won't get you there. You're stuck. You can't go through that change. You experience a kind of existential inertia. People often enter therapy for exactly this reason. They, they can state who they want to be and what kind of world they want to be in. They can imagine it. They can make inferences of what it would be right, like if they were there. They can deeply want to be there. But they don't, they don't get there. They stay stuck. I want to stop getting in these horrible romantic relationships. I want to be in a relationship that is deep and profound. It would be so good. I can imagine myself there. I can see myself. But I can't get there. Every time I try to get there, I end up here again. Every time, somehow, and I don't understand how, I don't understand how, the way I'm caring about things, the way I'm participating in myself and my world, is preventing me from making that way of life a viable option to me. I want to be there. Think about Paul and the old man and the new man. I want to be there. I want to be that person living there. But all my efforts to get there circle me back to here. I just can't get out of this existential inertia. I don't know how to bring about the sensibility transcendence that's going to make that way, that person, and that world viable to me. How do I get there? How do I get there? How do I stop suffering? 
So one thing that can happen to people is they can lose their agency. Remember, that's what suffering means, because they are they're 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 they are they are stuck like this. They're losing any sense of how to get to that other worldview, that other self. They're experiencing radical existential inertia. Jung used to often, Carl Jung used to talk about the primary thing that people would have to get to and have to express and why they would come into therapy was precisely because they felt stuck. It might not even be that there are particular concrete problems in their life. It might be that everything's actually going kind of well, but they're stuck. They're stuck. They're thwarted. They, there, there is, there's a sense of they're not moving and they should be. And although they can talk and draw images and make inferences about how they should move and where they should move to, they don't have the participatory perspective of knowing. They don't know how to get there. They don't know how to engage in the sensibility transcendence. They don't know how to bring about the transframing. And often they enter into therapy, and therapy has an agapic element into it. The therapist is affording an agapic transformation. But in addition to being stuck because of existential inertia, there's another problem people face when they are seeking, when they need significant transformation. And this goes to the heart of... All right, we're back. Well, that was... Uh, Excuse me. So that's a good introduction. Uh, before we even get into defining Gnosis more specifically, mm-hmm. he's helping us understand how we can become fractured in that war within ourselves. Yeah, so we went over what worldview means. Um, it's the integration of self um, agency and arena. So the, yeah, the, the way that we arena. see ourselves and the way we see the world. world yes. Yeah. Um, so that mutual conformity, that reciprocal revelation or realization that can occur. Like we can come to follow ideas and beliefs, but sometimes there can be a change to seen as seen through that way of being so the socratic way of being rather than just reading and believing in what socrates is talking about we start to see through socrates's eyes and to experience life Mm -hmm. through that worldview yeah that we have this ability to have that participatory knowing and take on different agent arena relationships the way i sum summed that up is seeing what is said and then moving into seeing as what is said yes there you go you know um so like in this case he's talking about a guy but you know you could you know uh you could be very well we're we're adverbalizing it if -hmm. you will um and that's not a word i know but you know yeah it's it's the difference between actually believing something and that being a livable opportunity that you can act out right and that's what he means by viability is is livable Mm-hmm. You know, like okay. it becomes available. Yeah, it's livable. Well, actually, that makes sense because, like, when we talk about like seeds being viable, like oh, yeah. you know, like yeah. it, 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 is it's it able to live? Yeah. Is it gonna? Is it yeah. livable? Um, yeah. So this this term sensibility transcendence 
um, is a, is beautiful. I love that. So we have the book, The Sovereignty of the Good by Iris Murdoch. I'm going to have to get that because it yeah. sounds really well, good. If you get that, let me let me read it after you. No doubt. But um, I have a note that just at the beginning of this. Um, it's not an argument for the reason of morality, but the viability, the livability of yes, morality. Yes, beyond the rules and reasons to the actual potential for transfer, transforming our agent arena relationships. So instead of just believing in the good, it's becoming instinctually like something that we act yes. out. You're li- you're you are living in joy. You are mm, living in what is go. good. You yeah. are living as, you know, yeah. just and which well, seems to be the optimal Ultimately we want to live in joy, right? You mm-hmm. know, that's like, you know, we call it happiness and the pursuit of life, liberty and happiness, but mm-hmm. really happiness is joy and joy is what is good. To bring up Bob Marley again, yeah. why did so many people love Bob Marley? He exuded joy so yeah. much, yeah. so much joy, so much celebration of yeah. being. So he went over this story, and I'm gonna I'm gonna sum it up real mm-hmm. quick and um, have you add notes in after it. So there's a mom; she's got a son. She doesn't like the son's wife. She finds her very abrasive, mm-hmm. and she's got lots of words, whether she's uncouth or brash or all these, you know, we'll call them negative uh, negative descriptors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and she thinks that daughter brings her son down, is, is yeah. below him. Yeah. Yeah. But moving through an agopic experience, she is now not using, say, the words like, you know, like, you know, you know, brash and whatever she's using, the more positive thing. Oh, she's spontaneous. And, you know, so it's flipping from negative mindset yeah. set descriptions to more of the positive. Yeah. She's seen the truth of it now and, and she's seen another perspective. Yeah. And what's it. that, what that's doing is it's not only just changing the mother's, you know, perception of the girl, but, but also changing the girl and of herself just by like, cause like the mother's seeing the girl as this thing. And at first it was this despicable, I, yeah. I don't like her, but now then the mother's realizes, changing. And now yeah. the mother's perception of the girl is changing. It's as enabling well. the girl to transcend more yeah. because her mother, the mother, the stepmother seeing her yeah. anew now. And yeah. so she's acting differently. So there's more room. Yeah. There's more affordances mm-hmm. for growth. She's also the mother in seeing the positive attributes and that switch that occurs from negative thinking to positive recognition, she recognizes how she was wrong too. Yep. So there's this like two sides of ratcheting it up. Yep. And, that, and in seeing that, she starts to celebrate who the daughter is. And in that celebration, that creates the daughter more mm-hmm. room to express and self-transcend herself. And in the celebration by the mother, she gets to further grow and transcend. And so there's this yeah, and, transframing, this radical, yeah. not just reformation, like not just reframing, but transframing a bilateral insight that yeah. is um, mutually uh, reciprocal feedback loop. Yeah, it's it's not like the, it's not the breaking and and making of a new frame, but the transcending from one's previous frame. I like how he said it's agent and arena being co-changed together, mm-hmm. become more by yes. by opening up ways of being. So you're becoming more by opening more, giving yourself. And others more affordances within yes. the way to be. Yeah, you're transforming your whole relational framework with others in reality, and, mm-hmm. and your own. You're having the systematic insight. You're recognizing a whole system of errors mm-hmm. that was occurring in one's own psychology and one's own thinking, mm-hmm. and so that is being transcended. That is sensibility transcendence. Yes, we have sensibilities, mm-hmm. and we're transcending our sensibilities now. And in the case of this mother, she is now. I would say before she was in a knowing by 
you know, oh, I, that this person's or whatever, but now it's knowing by loving and through this knowing by loving is able to yeah. transcend yeah, instead the of original framing. Judgment and projection mm-hmm. and this and that. She's now knowing by loving, mm-hmm. which is that mutually accelerated disclosure, mm-hmm. as Verveke described in a previous episode, what love is, a mutually accelerated disclosure. Yeah. It's the, the honesty and the openness that helps accelerate each other's honesty and openness back and forth, and it just ratchets up. Yeah, and so reasoning. Reasoning depends on what we love and how we care. Mm-hmm. And this gets us into, you know, the, um, the unthinkable, things that are yes. unthinkable. Yeah. Um, and we can, you know, we can run the thoughts and the circumstances in our head mm-hmm. all we want. But if it's not a viable, livable thing, it's unthinkable. It's not viable. It's unlivable. Mm-hmm. Unthinkable could be, you could call it not viable and uh, and yeah. unlivable. Not viable. I couldn't do that. Like, because yeah, you can think about all the experiences. Yeah, you know, like you could kick him out and he could have that guest bedroom for his office or whatever. But really, it's like, it's not really a livable option for him. Yeah. A, it would be morally wrong for him. B, he's getting a lot by having his son there and helping yeah. him somehow. And even if he can know. imagine the steps and yeah. how nice it would be in some aspects of it, he still can't bring himself to do it. So it's like a positive stuckness. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of cool that that there's that side of it too. There's unthinkable things that we just couldn't see ourselves. And then there's the 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 twisted negative of that, mm-hmm. you know, the stuckness with a, uh, a lot of existential inertia. So yes. you can tell yourself about all the things that you want. Well, I want this and I know I should do this and I know I should be doing this and all this stuff, but you just can't seem to make the change and it yes. keeps looping you back yes. to where you're at i've experienced this with cigarettes for years yeah. there's like this inertia to this habit it's been going on for the half of my life now and it's so so difficult to overcome that inertia yeah. and that's so i know exactly what he means there that's so, really well said yeah the solution per, or a portion of the solution is changing how how you care about yourself in the yes. world Yes. So instead of bringing it back to that same here that you were at before that you're in stuckness mm-hmm. at, you're you're changing how like very personally how you care, just mm-hmm. like the mother was how, you know, how she cared, what she cared about herself and, you know, how, how she, you know, because ultimately she cares about her son. Yeah. But now she can embrace the stepdaughter because, well, like, you know. And it might have, might have been triggered by the daughter's agopic love towards her husband. She was just having fun with the husband yeah. one day, and they were loving and being very yeah. funny with each other or whatever. And then she starts to see mm-hmm. her as endearing, the way that she's taking good care of her yeah. son and loving him well as oh. he loves her. This, you know, this is a funny little side, but I was hanging out with my grandmother this morning. I went to see her, and we were going to go out and have breakfast. But she's 93 years old, so she's really getting up in age. And some mornings she has trouble even walking without her walker and and her legs are very very weak and her back pain is immense all the time so she she didn't want to go out this morning um but she still wanted to see me so i went and picked up some breakfast for us mm, in nice. town and uh went by the house and we're eating and she's telling me this story about this is this so relates to the story that iris murdoch shares in in the in the book um what was the name of that again the sovereignty of the good so my grandfather's mother did not like my grandmother at mm. all. Same way. She was really nasty about her. And so they lived in a in a, a house where the walls were very thin, her, her mother. 
um, or his mother, I'm sorry. And when they were visiting her one night after they had just gotten married, she was telling my grandfather, his mom, was saying, why did you marry that Thane? Yeah, God. Thane. Called her a Thane. And it so, like, hurt my grandmother's heart. And... And so, you know, I'm sure she remembered that for years. Well, when that woman finally passed on a long time later in life, in their lives together, she gave all her clothes to my grandmother. And and my grandmother's a very small lady, like, you know, she's probably around 100 pounds at this oh, point. Oh, yeah, she's tiny. You know? Yeah. And, but but my grandfather's mother was actually kind of a larger, larger lady. She was around 200. Now she had sisters, and 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 other family members she could have given those clothes to, but she gave them to mm. my grandmother. And it's like at some point she had that sensibility transcendent. She mm. realized that they really loved each other, and she's really good for him. And she somehow, even though she may not have been she able, saw that to she was admit wrong. It, she couldn't know, admit it her word. whole life, but yeah. until she passed away, she she gave this this gift. Mm. Well, so yeah. That stuckness that we can get in is definitely to be avoided because it will rob you of your agency mm-hmm. and you'll feel powerless. And, like, particularly, like, you know. Well, yeah, in that case, like, my grandmother's stepmother never got to have, you know, well, a, a loving relationship with and her. And then also, think about the weight of holding well, such. Stepmother's in law. Uh, yeah. yeah, mother in law. Mother in law, um, thank you. But, you know, that's that's a heavy weight to hold, too. So it sticks mm-hmm. you and it gets, you know, like like I have a tendency of telling people, it's like, look, you know, you can hate me all you want or whatever, but that's a you problem and you're going to have to carry that weight. Yeah, right. And that's I'm only saying way. that because I can't carry the weight of hating other people anymore. Like now, mind you, there are people I'd just rather not hang out with, but. Yeah, but yeah, other people's you, inconsistencies, yeah. their cruelty, their nastiness, their anger, their insults, that's their shit. Yeah, that's their stuff. Yeah. They can deal with that. You I do, you boo. You know, yeah. I'm going to work on me. I don't have to worry about what's going on in other people's heads. So that's that's yeah. and so my last way to approach life. My last little note on this section is just um, so even if they, you know, the people that are experiencing the stuckness of their existential inertia, mm-hmm. even if they can think of how they should or could be, they don't actually know how and by, know and how. i'm using the word actually specifically yes. in action, action. In action. they just don't know how yeah. to do it that's and, right and that's where it's like you know counseling and the the agape therapy. healing through therapy yeah is that agape really orientation important. that therapy mm-hmm. takes on helps tremendously yeah yeah so that's, that's the good stuff um this is about the halfway point because we had a real big uh beginning but we're we at 25 minutes or so um yeah let's so take let's a take quick a little break, guys bit. We're going to finish out this episode here when we return and give us, you know, five or ten minutes-ish and grab yourselves some refreshments and we'll be right back. All right, we are back. What's up, everybody? So we're going to dive back into it now here. Was there anything else we wanted to go over? I think we, we um, left off with talking about how therapy has a agopic orientation to it and a loving openness yeah. that's given. Yeah. And so, yeah, um, a comfortable, secure space to be self-honest and just to talk it out. Because talking something out, like writing things out or talking them out with someone else, helps us put our actual emotions into words so that mm-hmm. we can self-understand. And it's really hard to self-understand some concepts 
and some insights that we would gain through self-reflection without being without having that opportunity mm-hmm. to try and explicate it for somebody else. Sure. So once you start talking or writing, that really helps you put your thoughts into words and then get a greater under- – and this is so much of therapy, just letting the person mm-hmm. actually have a comfortable place to talk because they're going to reveal to themselves uh, ultimately yeah. the more they talk. And even to a certain extent, you could do this where the – It's like someone's holding you in a safe space. Yeah. yeah. Well, you could do it with somebody like in a way where they're not necessarily completely willing, like you know, like the angsty teenager who's like, I don't need counseling. Well, you, you do do the Socratic method. Why? Well, why that? Why do you think of that? Why? <laughs> just keep asking questions until they're to the point where they're just like, you know, I don't know. Okay, good. All right. Yeah. I discovered a show recently on, I think it's Amazon Prime, and I think it was called Louder Milk. It's a really weird title, but it's actually, the lead is the guy from Office Space, the lead in that, okay. in that movie. And it seems like similar. It's not, I don't think Mike Judge is involved, but it's a similar kind mm. of style similar to office space now his personality in this one he's more of an asshole he's a very brash abrasive uh addiction counselor basically so he's this guy that's been clean for a while but he's got this ultimate eeyore kind of Uh. way to him and he is very very upfront and honest with these addicts and it's awesome it's on point it's like like you were just saying Mm -hmm. it's it's very it's confronting but it's in a caring way yeah yeah yeah, and ultimately, you know, for those who are not willing to say go through the counseling, like you know, the people in rehab that are there because they have to be there, opposed to seeking the help, or like the angsty mm-hmm. teenager who doesn't want to yep. be there talking to the counsel, you can do the Socratic method, but with agapic love. Mm-hmm. So while they're going through that, the love is infusing them, and through yeah, them, they the, can tell there's good intentionality behind this. You know, this guy's helping me in a selfless way. He's actually sacrificing his time and his effort. To do something that's going to gain him nothing. Yeah. And that's agopic. That's co-creative. Because then you're affording that person the chance to open up and blossom a little bit more. Feel a little bit more comfortable do- mm-hmm. doing so. And you know, being more self-honest in front of you. You're giving them the chance to be self-honest, which is a gift. You're supporting them in that space. Definitely agape. That's a really cool insight. I'm glad that he pointed that out. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Let's jump back into it here. So this is episode 17. If you guys want to check this out. For yourselves, we highly encourage you to subscribe to John Verbeke. Check out the Awakening the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series. You know, you can speed them up to 1.25 or 1.5 or two times speed when you... Uh, here, let me show you all again. We've done this before. But just in case you're new... Boom. If you don't know, you can click the wheel... And change your speed, playback speed, to faster speed. And it's pretty comfortable to listen at around here for Verbeke, I would think, for most people. But mm-hmm. you might get away with even two times speed uh, to at least be able to rewatch this series or move through the series mm-hmm. if you're able to maintain comprehension and catch up with us and move through it quite quickly. Uh, it's, this has been one of the most worthwhile uh, endeavors I've, I've ever taken on. I'm so glad that you're sharing this with me, Rose. Oh, I'm glad you bugged me for like a year about doing it. Like literally, like dude, we got to do this thing. Bugging like, people, we got to do this baking. thing, man. We got to do this thing, and it's like, okay, all right, all right. Well, actually, yeah, hey, hey, I'm having a great time. It's life is starting to make a little bit more sense. I'm still, you know, freaking depressed most of the time, but that's just I, I run depressed and angry. That's just the way yeah, I am. I feel I'm an art. I'm an artiste. Partially a sign of the times and partially us just learning how to come into some kind of balance 
you know we're we're well, trying to optimize it's our a processes lot sometimes so it's like balancing between you know like uh, the world today and, is a lot to keep up yeah, with man. man there's so much change and transition happening so fast we feel like the ground is moving too fast beneath our feet for us to gain any sense of stability you know, it's where and we're almost in a maelstrom at yeah. this point and for those who don't know what a maelstrom is a maelstrom is a point where like say like uh, the mouth of a river or an opening going out to the you know, to the ocean, the river's going one way, but say the, the tides are coming up and then you get this chaotic flow that just sucks things in and churns them down. Mm. But there's a mm. way to ride these maelstroms and be able to use the inertia to fling you into the next spot and not background where you were and smash you into the wall. Right. So it's, um, highly chaotic. Um, but it is a port of entry or a port, a point of, excuse me, not a port, a point of entry or a point of exit. So it's a transitionary period, hmm. place between two things, and that's where we are. Hmm. And it's chaotic as hell, because yes. one thing's going this way, and the other thing's going this way, and it's all going this way. Hmm. And yeah, and it's hard to ride that, because if you do get too close to the center where everything's moving fast enough, then it breaks you and sucks you down. But if you get too close to the walls, you get smashed up hmm. against the walls. You can find that one perfect little spot where you just go zip. You're out. Uh, and shoot yourself out of it and not all maelstroms can be navigated you know there's one that uh what is it the columbia Brutal. the columbia river you got to have a pretty good boat and a really good captain to take something from the ocean and then go up mm. the columbia river because it's very large very deep very fast water and then it's the mm. pacific ocean which is very large very deep and when the tides change they t- change real quick it's not like east coast tides which creep in and out it's mm. a matter of minutes mm-hmm. and then that nice little beach cove that you're on is now underwater and i'm glad i got out when i did you know like so uh that's wild yeah it's uh but such is life you know everything has its ebb and its flow indeed there's always things moving maybe not necessarily counter but not necessarily parallel either or sometimes in the wrong spots parallel and then you feel like it's happening all too fast yeah you know yeah, to f- to find stability amidst the storm, we must find ways to ground and center ourselves. You could say, or decenter even oh. from our Id- idea of having a center. The whole process of self inquiry and and meditation is to self reflect and to turn one's consciousness basically in on itself to observe mm-hmm. one's thoughts and feelings as they arise. And what a beautiful thing when one realizes, oh, I can actually watch my, I can notice and see in mm-hmm. my emotions as they arise yeah. in it, my consciousness. And my consciousness is not affected. It's actually what's watching the yeah, emotions and, and arise I, within it. And ideally, your consciousness isn't so entirely affected by the experience that is happening as well. So it's kind yeah, of your like consciousness is just a like a bit. camera recording. Yeah. The camera recording the the. Exp- the explosion special effect that's happen- happening off in the distance isn't affected by it in any way. Yeah. The people moving back and forth don't change the quality of the lens or anything like that. Yeah. It's just there. It's like the ground of awareness is like this primary mode of awareness, you could say, is just aware. And it's quite peaceful. Mm-hmm. It's quite beautiful and it has a sense of freedom and spaciousness to it. And, and so and, and, re- recognizing that space between our thoughts <coughs> and then learning to cultivate that sense of presence in meditation, retur- 
continually returning back to that spaciousness, to that just the primary awareness, is the reps of meditation. That's the exercise of it. And that's what cultivates your sense of presence, your acuity with being able to return to presence at any time. So when the world does get overwhelming, we do have the capacity to shift into this agopic mode Mm -hmm. of orientation with the world, this unconditionality that is just here and all accepting and for giving. It's giving, it's love, and it's openness. It's receiving without any kind of restriction at default. And so we can cultivate that through meditation, through breath work. We can learn to get a sense of our being, this sense of presence as well. And so I highly, highly recommend breath work and meditation. Definitely check out the podcast side of this show here because, you know, we have the YouTube thing going on, but there's, you know, 70-something episodes of the podcast now, several guided meditations, Wim Hof breathing sessions, and there's other tools for you guys there to utilize as well. So I highly encourage that because I feel it. You know, it's like an accelerating change in the world that seems to be occurring right now too. And it's, it is it is really difficult to feel that one can be in a sense of stasis and alive and joyous in this interactive dream that we are weaving together. But that is really what's happening. We are really just this one thing playing itself out. It's a great, wonderful, beautiful mystery imbued with all kinds of contrasts that certainly allow for the realism of it. I don't know if existence could exist without the interrelating opposites. So it's it's a gift and it is something that is also a challenge for us. And there is suffering involved, but we can become more optimal in our relationship with our and, environment and one another. In suffering in the sense of threat of dukkha, which is yes. the lopsided self-destructive wheel. We can wheel. learn to ride the wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Opposed to suffering in the sense of loss of agency. But there's plenty of that too. Yeah. <laughs> Two yeah, different way, me- sure. ways of suffering. But, you know, and I don't, I, I'm not necessarily sold on this idea that the goal of a good life is to not suffer the goal of a good life is to live as good as you can, even though there's, we're always at threat of dukkha and we're always a, the threat of loss of agency, whether it's from an external source or our own existential inertia, robbing ourselves of our true power as yeah. an agent within this re- arena that is the universe that we That's get to it. help co-create. It's what Rocky said to his son in what, Rocky 5 or 6? He's like, it's not how hard you can hit, I think, it's how many times you can hit, get hit or how hard you can get hit and get back up. Yeah. Like, cause life is brutal. Life is brutal, but it's not about how perfectly you can stay in this optimal relation with everything. It's just about getting good at getting back up mm-hmm. and getting yeah. back into kilter. And it's something, you know, more people should hear. And unfortunately nowadays it seems almost cruel to, to tell a child that no, the world is dangerous. The world is not fair. It's not all sunshines and rainbows and you're, you're very rarely going to get what you truly want. Yeah. But you are more powerful than you know. Yeah, and you can help make it better. That's why we tell them that is because you actually do have the power to really yes. truly go through it. You're going to go through this. Yes. And if you don't go through any of that, you're not going to grow. Yes. You know, that's where, you know, if you spoil your kid too much, then you're not helping them be a true person because mm-hmm. part of helping somebody be a true person. Yeah. Cause you're going to die one day. You're going to have to know how to live suffering. without you. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. why you take your kids camping and, you know, teach them how to start a fire, you know, make them make their bed and clean yeah. up their room and learn yeah. to take care of themselves. Yeah. All and right, then you skin brush their, your teeth and then you skin know. skin their knees and then get in fights with their friends and their siblings and they'd be like look i don't want to hear no more y'all figure it out 
That's it. You know? <laughs> yep. Giving kids the opportunity to solve problems on their own without authorities hovering over them all the time. It's actually really important for our development. We have to learn how to live with one another oh, man, in this I was, world. And I was it's a, a harsh kid, world sometimes. I was a kid in the 90s and early 2000s, and it was like it was a good time. It was still running around. You knock on somebody's door to see if they're home. Yeah, and yeah. if they weren't home, you got to go find another friend or maybe like you come up on that spot where you all hang out and then some of your friends are That's there. That's exactly like, yeah, what it was, you know? man. I remember that too. Yeah, I grew up in, you know, 80s and 90s and I remember like memorizing everybody's phone numbers. Mm-hmm. I remember the different mm-hmm. places that we would plan on meeting the day before. All right, tomorrow we're going to be at the woods at 10. Let's go. Yeah. You know, so we all show up with our bikes and we're ready. Like know? that one spot? No, nah, no, nah, the other spot because we don't want Jimmy to come because yeah, yeah, Jimmy's yeah, being yeah, an right, asshole. Yeah, so yeah. we're going to go to the other spot. Here, yeah. <laughs> yeah so that's how um, you learn your social acuity though you gotta you gotta get to practice it with your peers on your own so john verveke when we get back in here is going to go into not just being stalked by uh addition to being stalked i don't think it's stuck um but at you know instead of not just being at risk of it and stuck by existential inertia there's another problem people face yes and that's basically where we're at so we're going to discuss another problem not just being stuck not by just the inertia. The ex- existential inertia we can experience but yeah so something th- else. this will be yeah. the next spot all right guys let's roll when they need significant transformation and this goes to the heart of one of the best books i've already mentioned it before in this series, um, in I think philosophy in the last uh, 20 years, this is L.A. Paul's work, a Transformative Experience. Because what L.A. Paul's work points to is a way in which these transformative experiences render us, the possibility of such transformative experiences render us kind of stupefied because what they have us do is confront a deep kind of existential ignorance that is endemic to these transformative experiences. And it has to do again with this very perspectival and participatory knowing that I'm talking about. Okay, so she gives the example, she first starts with a very trivial example, just to, to to warm you up to the thinking. She, she says, somebody offers you to taste this fruit that you've never tasted before. And the problem is people have a very bimodal reaction. They either t- say, wow, this fruit is so unlike any fruit I've ever tasted. It's so wonderful. I love it. Or they say, this fruit is so unlike any fruit I've ever tasted. I hate it. It tastes like vomit. And, and the thing is, You don't know which reaction you're going to have until you bite the fruit. And she says, well, do you bite the fruit? And you may say, well, I don't know. The point is, right, you bite the fruit or not, you'll typically say, well, what does it matter? There's nothing significantly at risk if I have the fruit. That's true. But what the fruit example points to is the following. There's a kind of knowing that is dependent on your state of being. This is your perspectival knowing. 
You don't know what it is like, because that's the core of perspective. You don't know what your salience landscape will be like when you eat this fruit until you have eaten the fruit. There's no way of knowing that ahead of time. You have to go through the experience to know what it is like to have the experience. You say, okay, I can sort of get that. So, right, this is kind of what she calls an epistemic transformation. But she says, some of the times what we're confronting is something deeper, where we're confronting a personal transformation. Right? This is where what's, what's happening again is knowing not just by having a particular perspective, this is knowing by having the agent arena relationship radically transframed. You don't know what it's like to be that person in that world right? because you have to actually be changed and the world has to be changed in order for you to have that participatory knowing. So she talks about the fact that what she means by like a transformative experience is one in which you're going to undergo that change in perspectival knowing and that change in participatory knowing. So she gives a Gedanken experiment to bring that out first, a thought experiment. She says, imagine the following. Right? She said, your friends come to you and they reveal the secret. They give you just in, like, indubitable evidence that they can do the following. They convince you that they can absolutely do the following. They can turn you into a vampire. Do you do it? Do you, do you become a vampire? Now, before you put this off as silly, the point of a, a philosophical thought experiment is to play with something free from your own life so you can get clear about it, what it means. After we've played with it, we will go back to our lives. But here's the issue. You can't make any inferences about this because you don't know what it's going to be like to be a vampire, and you don't know who you're going to be when you're a vampire. Because your preferences, your character, everything is going to change, and your salience landscaping is going to radically change. You don't know what it's going to be like. So here's what you face. I don't know what I'm going to lose if I become a vampire. I don't know what I'm going to lose. Once I go through this change, I will have lost a way of being, it will become unthinkable to me, I can't get back to it, but I don't know what I'm going to lose until I go through it. So, oh, well, then I shouldn't do it. Ah, but if I don't do it, I don't know what I'm missing. I don't know what I'm missing. There could be a way of being here that is amazing and wonderful. I don't know what I'm missing. And I'm caught. I equally don't know what I'm going to lose, and I don't know what I'm going to what I'm missing. And I can't do any calculations. I don't know what my values are going to be. Are, are my values now the right set of values? Are my values then the right set of values? Is the kinds of experience I'm having now or the... Like, there is no place above I can make the comparison. I can't reason my way through it. And now, unlike the fruit example, everything is at risk. Both the agent and the arena are at risk. And you go, okay, so what? I get it. Who cares? I'm never going to be a vampire. That's not the point. The point is once you acknowledge the logic of the problem, 
This is what she now gets you to realize. You confront these in your life at multiple times. Here's an example. So relevant to everything we've been talking about with agape. Should you have a kid? Should you have a child? Do you see how it's exactly the same? You don't know what you're missing if you don't have a child. Because you are going to, we talked about this, you're going to become a different person with a different salience landscape. And until you have a child, you don't know what it's like. So you don't know what you're missing. You also don't know what you're going to lose. Oh, people will tell you, oh, blah, 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 blah. But until you go through it, you don't know. You're existentially ignorant. Here's another one. Should I enter into a romantic relationship with that person? You don't know. You don't know who you're going to be because if it's a real romantic relationship, it's going to change you. You don't know who you're going to be. You don't know what your salient landscape is going to be until you're on the other side. You don't know what you're missing by not getting into the relationship, but you don't know what you're going to lose until when you get into it. So should you do it or not? We face irreversible change and yet we can't, there's no way to reason our way through it because on both sides of the transformation we are confronted by radical ignorance. We don't know what we're missing and we don't know what we'll be losing. We don't know if we should stay here. We don't know if we should go there. Now, I've had the pleasure to talk to, to L.A. Paul Laurie about some of this and present a case to her, um, which I think she, she, there's some agreement uh, about this. Uh, and uh, I look forward to, uh, we have some future work we're doing together. As I pointed out to Laurie that when, whenever we're going through any significant developmental change, like to use Paul's example, going from a child to an adult. The child doesn't know what they're going to lose when they lose their childhood innocence, when they become an adult. They don't know. But as an adult, right, but if, the child also doesn't know what it's going to miss, what it's missing if it doesn't become an adult. And you think, oh, that's ridiculous. No, it's not. Do you know how much people face difficulties precisely because they get transfixed by this. They, right, if I grow up, I'm going to, I might lose stuff, but if I don't grow up, I don't know what I'm missing. Ah, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? Like, if I choose this career, I lose all these wonderful potentialities. But should I just keep all my possibilities open? Look at all my possibilities. But, but if I choose this, I'll lose. And, I, and some of those possibilities I don't even know. But if I don't ever choose, what am I missing? I'll never know because I've never actually gotten into any particular career. 
So we can be stupefied as we face the need for radical transformation. So people are not, they go into therapy not only because they're stuck, they don't know how to transform, they're also stupefied. They don't know if they should. I, 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 I want, oh, but should, because I might, oh, what am I, what am I, right? And, 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 and this is bound up with the aspect disguise that people get into when they're stuck. And it shows this stupefaction and the stuckness working together. Look, somebody comes in, they're doing therapeutic work with you, right? Uh, why are you here? I'm stuck. How are you stuck? Oh, well, I'm so stubborn. I'm like, I'm stubborn and I rigid and I, oh, oh, and I want, oh, and I need to get, I need to be more flexible. Oh, okay. And then you talk to them and let's talk about other stuff. Come back. And come. What do you like most about yourself? Oh, I'm persistent. I don't give up. And you see? The very thing they're trying to change is the very thing about themselves that they don't want to let go of, that they're most identified with. I'm stubborn. I won't change my mind. What do you like about yourself? I'm persistent. I don't give up. I don't change my mind. They talk about the same thing, one under a negative aspect and one under a positive aspect, and they don't realize it. They're stuck and they're stupefied. Now, when we're stuck and we're stupefied, when we're stuck, we can't imagine how to make an alternative worldview significant, how to make it viable. When we're stupefied, we can't imagine the alternative. We can't figure out how to rationally make the choice. So we get this, right, inertia and indecision. We're stuck and we're stupefied. And then we're trapped. We're existentially trapped. And then you can think about how that could mix, be mixed up with the stuff we talked about with the Buddha. The parasitic processing, the parasitic processing, the modal confusion. But we get stuck. How do you get out? What do you do in therapy? Because therapy works. What do you do? How do you, like, how do you get people out of being existentially trapped? Well, let's, let's go back to it. Let's try and work our way through it. Hey, hey. Don't you hate it when you feel stupid and stuck? <laughs> Stupefied. Get stupefied. Mm. So he picks up talking about um, L.A. Paul's book, The Transformative Experience, mm -hmm. which he brought up previously in the series. The possibility of transformative experience confronts us with our own existential ignorance, our ignorance about ourselves that he just said at the very end there, he sums it up really well. The same habits and modes of being that we wish to change. So we're in therapy. We're saying, I want to change this. I want to change mm -hmm. that. We also are identified with, you know, one stubbornness that they wish to change is also mm -hmm. their steadfastness and steadfastness and determination mm -hmm. and they don't give up. And that's, so there's good and, you know, negative aspects to things that we don't even recognize. We're identified with them. Something we wish to change is, we're egoically attached to. Our ego does not want to let go of. We can't imagine the alternative, so we put ourselves in an 
existential trap. So let's let's uh yeah and you know a bit there, like what he was mentioning with the fruit. You won't mm-hmm. know whether you like it because it's different or you'll hate it because it's different until you do it. Yep. And in the case of fruit, there's very low risk. You just spit it out. But yeah. when it comes to life, now you're adding a lot more weight to it oh and, heck yeah and the, so the it, vampire example was hilarious but the, 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 the child uh, the child example, example is more relatable much more powerful you know because it does change you yeah well and even the like if you could live forever would you do it well what would you lose if you live forever and mm-hmm. what what are you going to miss out if, on if, if you, you don't, don't? yeah yeah you so know. there's two sides to this. We're ignorant on both sides. Mm-hmm. We can't know either. We can't know what we're missing out on. We can't know what we're going to lose yep. if we do it. Yep. And there's no higher place to view it from to to gain any. Yeah, you grasp can't make any inferences. Either. You can't make any predictions of what it's going to be like. You have the only way to know it. So this is perspectival knowing. This is like I've never been to Mexico. I could read all about Mexico. Mm-hmm. I could learn everything there is to know about Mexico. I could even have somebody describe it to me in detail and watch videos and everything. I'm still not going to know the experience of actually being and living in Mexico until I'm there and I'm smelling the Mm -hmm. smells and hearing the sounds with my own ears and I'm immersed in it. You know, you can't know what it's like to swim until you swim or driving. Everyone remembers this. You can't imagine what it feels like to drive a car until you've done it. Mm -hmm. So that's perspectival knowing. We cannot have that with these kinds of existential dilemmas. There are experiences or there's ignorance that confronts us here. Yeah. And the, the idea of trying to transcend it, it's like we almost, our brain wants to shut down. It doesn't know what to do with this. I came up with We a, seek out therapy to help us with this. With a little, uh, little phrase that I'm kind of proud of, um, and it's good for postulating in the head. Um, you don't know till you know, and you won't until you do. And that's not reasonable, as in you're not able to reason with it. Right. And you won't know what you can't know. And now you know. Or, or you won't know what you're missing <laughs> if you do. There's, yeah. yeah. The, the fact that there's this two sides to it is what causes us to be not just stuck, but stupefied. Yeah, stupid. Uh, I have stupefaction here, but yeah, it's becoming stupefied. But. Yeah, because we go to therapy not only to try and figure out how we can change something, but sometimes we don't even know if we should. Yeah. You know? And, and and also for you know if we what can't get, lose if we can't get that higher say third person perspective on it, it would help to have somebody else that can, so they can show us not just where we're like stuck, but also where we're stupefied. Because mm-hmm. we're going to ruminate in like a repeating wheel kind of loop thing on our own, whereas a therapist can can really help us yeah. map map it out. So speaking of stupefy. Um, in Harry Potter, there is a spell, which it's just stupefy, and it makes you pass out and not able to move and not able to do anything. Mm-hmm. So, the word you know, stupefy. I don't think it's to make people dumb; it's to make them not able to do. No, oh, yeah, no, it's like bewildered. You're you're yeah, bewildered you're like, and dumbfounded. You know, you're you're made dumb by something that's too big for yeah. anyone to be able to figure out. Yeah, yeah. And and in the face of that, we experience that existential inertia, um, mm-hmm. and our existential o- ignorance is confronting us. And we just yeah, we're like we're at a loss. How, how do you how do you deal with this? Yeah. So you have to experience that trans change on both sides. You have to have that uh, sensibility. What was that term again? Sensibility transcendence. Mm-hmm. You have to have that. Ex- you have to be able to transcend your perceptions and your sensibilities and your ideas of things to be able to see how one is operating. It's 
It's like seeing the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. Yeah, and, you know, I guess the unholy triad would be, you know, being stuck, so the inertia and stupefied, and then and then going through the parasitic process where you just keep you know that where parasitic process. what you know what you're most familiar with mm-hmm. every time you go through it becomes more familiar and yeah. more of what you know and if it's in the negative aspect it's, it's, it's parasitic. parasitical yeah. so yeah. you know now you're even further not able to move but burying mm-hmm. yourself further back into yourself mm-hmm. and so the question we ask is what is to be done about this yeah. and this is i guess where we're going on next yeah you got anything else no i think that pretty well covers it all right cool all right guys jumping back in so what do some people do when they're considering whether or not they want to have a child well some people just throw themselves into the darwinian flow and just right but some people are like oh should we have a child or not right what do some people do well, I've noticed many people doing this, and it's very interesting. They get a pet. They get a dog, typically. And then they do kind of bizarre behaviors with the dog. They have pictures taken with the dog, and they give the dog a bed and some toys, and right? And right? And so they go, ooh, right? And what they're doing, right, is they're doing something that's, right, kind of like having a child. Should I enter into a romantic relationship with this person? This is advice that was actually given to me when I was dating, and I, I see people do it. Go on a trip with them. Go on a trip with them. Live with them for seven days. It's kind of like living with them. It's kind of like being in a relationship with them. People say, well, well yeah, I, I sort of get that. But even the things like the being a vampire, how do people do that? Well, they play role-playing games. And you say, that's just fantasy. Okay, well, pay attention to the way this is evolving in our culture. So role-playing games have moved into live-action versions where you act out the role-playing, and then this has evolved into a, a Norwegian, a, like not a Norwegian, a Scandinavian style, which is called Jeep form. And in Jeep form, what you're doing is you're given a scenario to act out, and the person that plays the role of like the, the, the dungeon master is like a movie director. They will tell you to cut scenes or switch roles. And here's the whole point of Jeep form. You, you're trying to enact emotionally difficult situations. Why would you want to do that? What, what people are seeking in Jeep form is they're seeking a phenomena called bleed. I want, I'm going to do this role playing and I'm getting, I, this person out here is a director and they're doing stuff to mess up with my, my transframing and my role playing because what I'm trying to do is get so that the line between my real life and what I'm doing in this psychodrama bleeds. So that the line between the game and reality bleed into each other, blurs. I'm looking for bleed so that I can play, seriously play with the possibilities. Do you see what's happening here? People engage 
and we have to learn how to take this word seriously again, they engage in play. The whole point about play, right, the whole point about play is it puts you in between. Here's the world you're in, and here's the world you want to be in, and then there's this liminal zone where we can play. It's no coincidence that as organisms become more intelligent, more, need, 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 more in need of right, developmental transformations, they also become much more playful. They need more and more play. And play is not a frivolous thing. One of the disasters of our culture is we think of play as only about fun. We've trivialized it. Now, play can be fun, but I don't think fun is what people are after in Jeep form. It's not really fun that people are after when they adopt a dog and treat it like a child. See, the word play doesn't have to be about fun because you can play music and it could be heartbreaking music. It could be Mahler that you're playing. In Tai Chi, you don't do Tai Chi, you play Tai Chi. And it's not about having fun, it's about a deep engagement with processes of transformation. So the way to think about this is what are people doing in all these instances? They're, they're confronting the possibility of a transformative experience and so what they do is they have an inactive analogy. This isn't an analogy of word or thought because that's not going to work because this is about perspectival and participatory change. This is an analogy you enact. You go through the actions. Now this takes a lot of skill to create an inactive analogy. It creates a lot of skill. I got to get it right. Right? If I'm doing the Jeep form, I got to get it right. And that's what the director's there to help. Might make, do role reversal, suddenly give me an object I got to use, right? The therapist will suddenly get you to talk to that, pretend that that empty chair, that your mother's there and start talking, right? And you got to get it right. Because the inactive analogy has to be similar enough to the world and the person you're trying to become in that world. It has to be similar enough that you can feel it. You can start to get the perspectival and participatory knowing. But it's still similar enough to this world that you can pull out if you need to. And you got to get, it's, it's this delicate balancing act. It has to be relevantly similar to the world I want to go to, but still relevantly similar to the world that I'm in. Because I want to put myself into a place where I can play where the t with the two so that I can compare them together. This, this, creates, this creates, it demands, I should say, it demands tremendous skill. This ability to come up with an apt, there's, there's a beauty and an elegance here, an apt metaphor that you can actually play within, that you can participate in, so that you can, ah, that's what it would be like. Ah, but, I, but I, I still know who I am right now. And I can feel and see and sense the two together. That's what you're doing in therapy. 
One of the things we need to do, as you can probably see an implication of what I'm saying, as part of addressing the meaning crisis, is we have to recover play. And I, I hope you now understand what I'm going to say, and that it is not meant to be disrespectful. One of the important things that religion was, was play. That's what ritual properly understood is. People are playing, serious playing, in order to try and put themselves into a liminal place, a place between two worlds, the normal world and the sacred world they want to dwell within. They're playing there in order to see how and whether they should go through the change in world and self that the religion is demanding and affording. Now notice, in order to make a worldview viable to me, I have to go through this self-world sensibility transcendence. But you've seen that before. You've seen that before. This is anagoge. Anagoge is precisely to set things up so that as this as this is transcending, as, it's as I'm coming more into contact with what's real, getting below the illusion, like Paul just seeing things in mirror or just shadows on the cave for a player, as that opens up, that affords me transforming. Right? So sensibility transcendence is just, I think, anagage. And sensibility transcendence is how I enter into a worldview. So, what I need is I need not only an enactive analogy, I need a way of enacting anagoge. And that is also what religious ritual used to do for us. Religious ritual was a way of playing with inactive analogies so that I can compare, so I can overcome the ignorance. I can, right, I can, see isn't even the right verb, I can see, be, these two worlds, these two ways of being, these two persons within those worlds. But ritual also was enacted anagoge. It was giving you the skills or knowing how to get unstuck. How to go through sensibility transcendence. How to make that world, world viable. So in therapy, you're often doing this. You're giving people an active analogy. Okay, so you're having, like, it's coming clear that you're stuck, and it has to do with how you're related to your mom. Okay, so pretend that your mom is in that chair. I know she's dead now. Forget that. This isn't literal, but it's not fun. It's not frivolous. It's serious play. Pretend your mom is there. Enact that. Get the analogy. Talk to her. And then, here, I'm, I'm a therapist. I'll give you ways of reframing her and reframing yourself. I'll help you to engage in anagogy so you'll start to know how to go through the sensibility transcendence. And that's how you get out of being existentially trapped. You have this ritual behavior Again, like when I'm doing Tai Chi, like 
Tai Chi, right? Th- these are all, this is an active analogy. I'm doing these motions. This is how, like, if somebody's, this is how, single whip, this is helping me actually enact what it would be like to be in a fight situation. But it's also anagogic, right? The whole point about doing Tai Chi is it's also radically transforming. That's one way of understanding Chi. Don't understand it as magical energy. Understand it ex- instead as it's a way of radically transforming how I'm experiencing myself in the world. In Tai Chi, we talk about the two eyes. I, I have an eye that's looking out at the world and looking at myself, and what I'm doing is I'm radically transforming them. I'm trying to bring about the know-how of anagoge, and I'm enacting the analogy of fighting. It's a ritual. I'm seriously playing with an inactive analogy and enacting anagogic transformation. That's why it's a path of wisdom and a martial art at the same time. You see therapy, real martial arts, martial arts that aren't just kick and punch, but real martial arts, we're all doing this. That's why so many people in the meaning crisis are attracted to martial arts, are attracted to things like Jeep form. They're hungry. That's why they go into therapy. They are hungry. They are hungry for ways of dealing with being existentially trapped. So, people are looking for ways of transforming not just their cognition, their beliefs, but perspectively transforming their consciousness in a participatory fashion, transforming their character. What they identify with and how they, that identification enables them to inhabit an agent arena relationship. We're close to telling you what Gnosis is. So in Gnosis, what I'm trying to do is bring about an altered state of consciousness. Because that is going to put me into the flow state got the possibility of giving me a higher state of consciousness, a mystical experience that's transformative. And then what I'm doing is I'm setting this within a ritual context. Where I'm, I'm doing inactive analogy and I'm doing inactive anagoge. I'm doing serious play. And I have the flexibility, the cognitive flexibility. This is how the psychedelics can be enmeshed. Why psychedelics can improve therapy so much. Because the psychedelics give you the cognitive flexibility in the flow state and the possibility even of a higher state of consciousness that then right, empowers this process to get you free from existential entrapment. This is why you give people right, psychedelics, and you put them through the therapeutic process and you can get them free from post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay, so now, what's Gnosis? This is Gnosis. Gnosis 
is to have a set of psychotechnologies that create a ritual context, like Jeep form, like martial arts, like therapy, that allows us to overcome being existentially stuck, existentially stupefied. And that is being powered by an altered state of consciousness that's induced by chanting, sleep deprivation, psychedelics. And what this does, what Gnosis does, is it frees me from being existentially trapped. It's this combination, this integration of psychotechnologies that activate and transform perspectival and participatory knowing and give us a sense of a greater reality that we want to live within and thereby liberates us from being existentially trapped and heals us from our fractured suffering, our fragmented agency, our broken world. That's Gnosis. So what I want to look at next time is how Gnosis was taken up within a movement within the uh, same time period as early Christianity. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Oh man, that was good. Meow, 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 meow. Meow. Ruff, ruff, ruff. Meow. Ruff, ruff, ruff. Meow. Ruff, 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 ruff. That little meow came out like. That was my, uh, that was the meow that my, uh, childhood cat scooby once he got to be up like near like 18 years old he'd just go scooby. sometimes you just open his mouth and not meow you know he's just old as sin so he'd be like Row. and when you you didn't pass the joy to him he'd go <laughs> i love that annoyed cat sound <laughs> when you're like denying them the thing they want in that moment like i know what you're doing the next meow hey. like meow meow that insistence. Ah, so what is to be done about being stuck and stupefied? Well, Get playing. Simulate serious play. Yeah. Simulated so experience. Basically testing the waters in a simulated safe mm-hmm. playing way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the kind of know. serious play we do when we're making music mm-hmm. or when people don't even realize like they get a pet when they're thinking about having yeah. a child and they start treating the pet like a child. Or, or even like kids playing house. Playing. You know, kids playing like, house, that's serious play. Playing yeah. at, like, they don't know what adults are, so they're going through, mm-hmm. or they don't know what it's like to be an adult, but they can see what adults do, so they're mm-hmm. playing, acting. play acting yeah. as adults figuring it out, you know. Yeah. And good actors are, you know, definitely engaged in a serious kind of a play. They're taking the thing seriously. They could be acting out something very sorrowful or scary, yeah. you know, but it's still something that one has to involve themselves in some suspension of belief and mm-hmm. put themselves in a liminal state and in a place between worlds where you're like part and imaginary and you still have enough agency of yourself to be able to play out this idea, mm-hmm. to simulate this idea for yourself. Yeah, and, and the goal of this 
serious play is mm-hmm. to blur the line between real life and this psychodrama that you're creating. So this, you, so this, um, oh, I guess the Jeep form, but any type of, yeah. you know, for any kind like, of play is helping us become more socially acute. Yeah. It helps us operate better in the world. This is why humans and mammals in general mm-hmm. play. And not you, you get, see all the way down to rats, not just like kittens and mm-hmm. pups, but rats right. even will wrestle with one another to teach each other how to be able to scrap in the real world. And they, they enjoy it, but it's serious play. So, yeah, you got Jeep form, you got Tai Chi. There's all kinds mm-hmm. of things where we engage in serious play. We're in, and Jeep form sounds really intriguing. You're enacting an emotionally difficult situation, and you have a director to help make mm-hmm. sure you're doing it very accurately and as realistically as you can. And by doing so, it helps situations bring about bleed, he says, which basically is like yeah. transference of some idea, some realization into reality. You can, yeah, and it's it's like re exposing or reality exposing emerges. or re exposing yourself yeah. to something that would be emotionally yeah. traumatic, mm-hmm. but in a safe way, and mm-hmm. then adding in some chaos. And there's like, okay, well, now flip to the other perspective. Yes. Now do this. Now interact with this to help yes. you know break up the framing yeah, a little bit of the intelligence of how to deal with these different approaches, these mm-hmm. different ideas, different outcomes. Yeah, and you know, play whatever type of play it is is integral to understand that we that in which we cannot know about directly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like you know, the child does can't know directly what it is to be an adult as a child because well, the child's a child. Yeah. So what does it do? It yeah. plays house, or it plays cops and robbers, yeah. or it plays. Yeah, and we typically think that we just play for fun, but this is showing us that yeah. it's not just about fun and like sensory simulation. We're mm-hmm. literally trying to enact something out so that we can understand yeah. it to be able to perform it better as as we approach it in life. Yeah, so we're using inactive analogy. Mm-hmm. An inactive yeah. analogy. That's a great term. Yeah. That really helps sum it up. And this helps us elicit that perspectival change, that change of perspective that we require to be able to gain the participatory knowing that we require in order to reciprocally have that reciprocal revelation with Mm -hmm. life and within ourselves about life within ourselves and so so it has to be accurate it has to be transferable that's why we got to get it right yeah and accurate in the sense of accurate to not just the world that yeah. you're in, but also the world that you're trying to go to. Yes, transferable. Well. Yeah. That's, so it can't be so freaking outlandish right? that it's similar doesn't, enough. But, yeah. you know, yeah. Well, yeah. that's why we like plays and stories and, you know, we like the sci fi and all that's that stuff. We, you know, it's like yeah. it's similar enough. Everything we do, but, we think in story. Humans yeah. are so story oriented. And we really do enjoy stories because it helps us understand how to play out different scenarios in reality. So yeah. biologically, we are tuned in to get positive endorphins. When we are seeing even the hunter act out how he did mm-hmm. the hunt, or the yeah. movie of the person yeah. overcoming a difficult trial in their in their mm-hmm. life, it helps you understand how that person emotionally yeah. approached it and reflect within yourself on how you might be able to do that too. And 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 good serious play really takes skill too. Mm-hmm. You know, like the musician playing yes. or the players on the stage, but also you know somebody who's say running you through the Jeep method. It, it takes. Yeah. skill which is is it's not going to be effective it's not going to yeah. help elicit an effective change in your life just like music not played with skill is not going to f- yeah be yeah effective yeah exactly impact. what is it ja- jamming without oh, man I, I gotta of... go back i gotta go back and remember it because it was so good but basically jamming without expertise and without skill is just you know it's just nonsense just it's trash yeah it's i hate to say it that way i've been there like you have to you have to <laughs> you gotta start the trash there, and yeah. you have to you have to go yeah. through it you know 
But, uh, you know, I, I think he's spot on. When You're going to fall when you get up on the skateboard. There's that process, yeah. 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 But he's spot on when he Fresh said we around. must recover play, and particularly mm-hmm. this ritualistic play. Yeah, that's the yeah. very most serious play, you know. And we've we've like we play like we play video games and we play around with things, but do we really play in a way that is helping us unstick ourselves and unstupefy ourselves? You this know? is why we enacted rituals yeah. in our ancient religions. Yeah. That's why it's so yeah. important for us to discover at least this ritualistic aspect of of our way of way of being of figuring things out because that's another aspect of serious play is the ritualization that we get involved in that serious play to get into liminal sphere and yeah. in the case of ritual where it's helping us play between this reality and a sacred ideal or a sacred understanding and, of and well ritual play so it it merges the inactive analogy like mm. you know like the playing through like a story or like playing house and doing that yeah but um but with inactive anagage, which is sen- as he said, sensibility transformation. Yes, yeah, anagage. When he originally taught us about that word, it literally means to elevate, and it mm-hmm. is the idea of enlightenment, of self transcendence, all of that. So your sensibility. It's, so it's, anagage helps us because it helps us. Yeah, to go ahead. There was it's, sensibility. It's, it's both. Like so, what the ritual does for us is it's both play but it's also elevating elevating our sensibilities and how we make sense of things Mm -hmm. and that's what i mean by sensibilities at the same time as playing yeah and you know Mm -hmm. so we can get into new world views um yeah we can understand and play out the potentials of different world scenarios and agent scenarios that we would be in and so this helps us. Anagogy is a way to get unstuck, to rise and ascend, mm-hmm. and to enact perspectival transformation, transformation of how we're perceiving the world. We can mm-hmm. actually start to gain some sense of a. I can role play, you know, that Mexico example I used with mm-hmm. somebody that's been there and mm-hmm. get closer to mm-hmm. the actual experience. And the perspective, perspectival transformation, it changes our participatory relation mm-hmm. with reality. This allows us to engage in that reciprocal revelation with life and within ourselves at once or with uh, and with others. And we re- recognize psychedelics are very helpful in this mm-hmm. because they help us to reframe so radically mm-hmm. and to experience high-level flow states. So it really empowers this process of Anagage, it allows Anagage and it allows this process of us to reach reciprocal revel, uh, revelation, realization through perspectival transformation and the upgrade our participatory relation with life. That's a lot. It's this whole last like five, 10 minutes, like that, just that last bit he did there, mm-hmm. summing up everything he just mm-hmm. said this episode. Wow. I could watch that several times over mm-hmm. and just ponder on different parts of it mm-hmm. because there's so much imbued within every single one of these terms that he's just stitched together. He had a paragraph of terms that he's taught us over the last 17 episodes there that summed up a whole hour's worth of conversation and took it to another level. It's so it's, it's powerful stuff there. I'm going to have to rewatch the end of this one. Yeah, so no so gnosis what a gnosis does. So gnosis is this ritualistic behavior yes. that does as far as... It's a way, we, it's a set of psychotechnologies. Yes, well, so what it attempts to do is it attempts to bring about an altered state of consciousness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And yep. so Gnosis is to have a set of psychotechnologies mm-hmm. that allows you to there overcome you stuckness and stupefaction yes. through ritual practice. Yes. So that that makes a lot more sense than mm-hmm. just, you know, like, oh, I know things, so I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a Gnostic or whatever. Yeah. It's like... Or I know no, Gnosis is a having thing. Like, you have a set of psychotechnologies that makes a lot more sense, you know? So it's like the the state of gnosis is the state of having these sets of psychotechnologies that help you unstick yourself mm-hmm. and unstupefy yourself. Yes. So like get over the, uh, and get over the, you know, mm-hmm. um, yep. The inertia of it. Now I'm sure, I'm sure there are techniques and certain types of, you know, Yes, yeah, certain types of psychotechnologies that are better than others within the, let's say, umbrella term of Gnosis. Yeah, yeah and, and perhaps even as like we're advancing as a species and culturally are more impactful now than they were. Or yes, the ones in the past are less impactful now yeah. than what we should be striving to come up with. Mm-hmm. But not getting rid of the stuff in the past, but no, exacting the stuff they, from the past into the future. How can we further refine and how can these different practices inform one another today that have been disparate for thousands of years but now are coming into contact? So these different methodologies of different styles of chanting, sleep deprivation, uh, mm-hmm. psychedelics, you know, plant medicines, and so on and so forth. There's very many techniques that we can bring together and bring into communication now to further refine and that name of the game right there i love that we just got a very clear description of a way out of these existential traps that we find ourselves in these things that seem insurmountable yeah this is why we're, we work things out with our friends sometimes. Yeah. You know, we'll role play a situation. Or run, you know, run scenarios. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been talking with... We know instinctually that this works. Yeah, I've been talking with my buddy Matt, you know, childhood best friend. Um, and, you know, what he'll do is like, you know, if he's running something down in his head and something in life that he's working out through, he'll like hit me up and he'll just run scenarios. Hmm. Like not like he'll tell me what's going on, but then he'll just run you know different scenarios yeah. that he's thinking about, yeah. and it's not necessarily like he's aware that like I'm running the scenarios to do this. It's no. just something we naturally it's do. It's like, hey man, yeah, can I give you a call? Yeah, what's going on? Okay, yeah. this is what's going on. Like, should I do this, or I'm imagining doing this, or like, what do you think about this? And you know, this like, helps so running you map out you know, that arena of choices that you and have. It's a, before yeah, you. and it's it's, it's just, there's a certain amount of play to it as well, and yeah, you know, yeah. it's enjoyable because you're imagining, you're role playing yeah, the situation yeah. in your head a little bit, just like we daydream things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll daydream scenarios for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Often, you know, everyone does this, and oh, I do it all the time. <laughs> I'm pretty sure everybody <laughs> does this. Yeah, it's, it's it's something we do. So becoming conscious of that, that you can see how you can really optimize that kind of process within yourself and then practicing it with someone else that's Mm -hmm. anagogically affording and helping that along. Well, that's all the notes. That's all the notes I have. And uh, I'm turning into a pumpkin. Yeah, that's all I got, too. That that was uh, was another great episode. And and you can see how Mm -hmm. these things are really starting to build on top of each other and so what this episode was for even halfway through yet guys is is building us up to the understanding of what gnosis is so the whole episode Mm -hmm. ends with the line of what gnosis is but we had to go through all of that all of that to understand what he actually meant yes yeah there's a lot of different interpretations of gnosticism nowadays yeah and so people are like so what does the word gnosis actually mean let's get a firm understanding and why would you need it 
of what uh, what it actually yeah. initially originally meant and then how it's been interpreted in different ways so we can actually mm-hmm. get a good view of this and, and an accurate conception of it. Yeah. Well, it's it's understanding fun. how humans got to where we are now. Yep. Yeah. And how we may awaken from this meaning crisis that we now find ourselves in. Dang, it's worth it doing. Yeah. And it's well, play. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's play. It's history, man. We're taking part in it and we're at this pinnacle point in history where we are kind of going through uh, something like a phase shift, like a butterfly mm-hmm. before it's come out of its cocoon. Mm-hmm. And trying to figure out how to do that you know when when to come out how it's safe and how are we going to approach the world that's basically what we're trying to do now as a species all of us together globally are trying to figure out how to move forward what to believe in what is true what is good and we're and more and more of us are having that hunger for the ability and the techniques reliable to be able to get ourselves unstuck unstupefied and out of the the parasitic mm-hmm. processing, processing yeah. spiral and then right. into a higher understanding of ourselves and mm-hmm. the arena that we occupy and the mutual definitions we create for ourselves in the arena that we occupy. Yes. Yes. Um, the more clarity that we can gain together, yeah. the more accurately we can, we can recognize what's happening before us in reality and the more effectively we can actually engage with reality yeah. and in ways that are going to be constructive and positive. And, and the more people we're going to pull in too, you know? Yes. The, the, the more, yes, this must be an engaged and inviting game that everyone is what should feel welcome to come play. And I'm realizing the more and more that, you know, I don't go like super deep when I'm out with people like talking about it because there's just too much, but you know, I'll start to talk, you know, talk in, talk in the, what, what do you say? The, 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 um, and you know you read the words but then you're starting to become what mm-hmm. the words like are act, saying yeah. so when i'm out and about and i'm in enacting mm-hmm. what these words are not just you know yeah embody the words even, themselves yeah, body in this I, way. I find people are believing in it I, from, I, I, from I think, the beginning yeah. i think people are very receptive yeah oh no that. when you're embodying you know, it they, it's very attractive yeah. and they seem interested um, it's, it's attractive to us as humans we want to be around that we recognize authenticity we recognize honor and often and, and uh, honesty. And we all know that we have, well, we may not, you know, intellectually know, but we know of our stuckness mm-hmm. and our just bafflement and stupefaction. Yeah. Um, whether we, you know, acknowledge it or it's just something sitting on the back burner that's just turning away and turning away. So when you start to hear things that get your brain clicking around, your brain's going to go, ooh. That has nutrients yes. in it. I want to consume yes. that. You know. Yep. Um, we instinctually know it. Know it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I mean, you can't help but notice when someone is virtuosic with something. Yeah. You know, with a skill, uh, be it an Olympic athlete or musician mm-hmm. or what have you. Even if you don't know how to practice or perform that skill at all, like you're not a gymnast, you can recognize high levels sure. of acuity in somebody else. High yeah. levels of virtue, and determination and practice and all of those things so you, we can recognize it you don't need to be, be an artist to look at something and goes well, yeah. that looks like crap or that looks like <laughs> yeah, crap. yeah 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 well you know there's this there's this whole thing well you just don't get it because you're not an artist i'm like nah, that just looks like sometimes doo-doo. It, it actually yeah. it actually looks like crap oh it is crap oh, oh, oh. Yes. yeah that was the point okay okay gotcha. okay yeah cool. cool yeah i don't get it but hey <laughs> right <laughs> Hey. All right. Um, so yeah, we're trying to figure out how to yeah. engage in positive change in the world. And yeah. it's you know, how many greats before us have 
have saying to us, we are the world, we are the children, it's time to make it a better place, so let's start giving. Yep. Or uh, it's time to make a change. Um, now I'm thinking Michael Jackson, now I'm thinking Tupac changes. Now I'm thinking Bob Marley. Yeah. Now I'm going on and on and on. This This is something that we can immediately recognize as useful as helpful and this is a way out of the meaning crisis this is a way out of our sense of meaninglessness and disconnection and the sense of instability well if the world feels unstable start being one of the stabilizing factors in the world because we truly do ripple out everything we do makes a difference and yeah, don't and ever first, forget it and first do it for the selfish reasons like as in i have to do it for this self fish uh, this, <laughs> this this selfish well because you know a certain amount of like you have to do things for yourself or else you're not going to if you can't fend off your own ducka, you might become the weight that. Yeah. Well, you don't do that. You don't wheel. have to do that selfishly, yeah. narcissistically. Well, I, yeah, I you mean, know, just like self-importantly, but self But just like do you it here first. Oh, this is better then, for yeah. the world. Well, it's both at once. Yeah. You recognize yeah. the good for one and all. Yeah. Making myself a better person is better for the world. Yeah. Help me make the better Precisely. world. I can't do unless I'm making myself a better person. No. So work on yourself because if you want to be more comfortable in the world and you want to have a better world to to live in and for people that come after you yeah. to live in. Yeah. And it, and you know, like it's, it's that simple back to the, the, the meaning of the event meaning, um, yeah. connection is, you know, it's, it, you have much more power over the meaning of something mm-hmm. that you it. can make meaning than you do right. over the events outside. Yes. So if you can start to change the meaning within yourself and your understanding of meaning, then the world actually does start to change more yeah. and there's more affordances mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. you to be able to be more impactful in the world. But it really it really starts with like ultimately recognize, starts with the self and then yeah. move recognize and then what recognize meaning, what's moving through. We're attached to situations yeah. and events that happen to us. Recognize that we have control over that. We, have a, yeah. we don't have a choice over the, what happens to us, but we have the choice in how we re- respond to it. Yeah. So that's very helpful. And, and I know what you meant by when you said selfish. You meant that we must engage in self-care. If yeah. we wish to help the world. Yeah. And you are just as important as everything and everyone else out there. That in fact we are truly one with everything out there. So it's it's a continuous process. Loving the world is loving yourself and loving others. And yeah, I think that's, that's about all that's I gotta a, say about that. That's all I got to yeah, I gotta no, yeah, I gotta eat some food too. I'm gonna let you all go here. Oh boy. It's been a long stream, but it's been an awesome stream. Yeah, and good one. thank you all so much for joining. Make sure to like and subscribe. Smash that like button. Share with friends and fam who you think would enjoy the show. Check out Actually on Spotify and Apple and all those places as well. And, oh yeah, American Dharma. We got shows coming up February 10th and 11th. It's going to be Friday and Saturday. First, we're going to be in Baltimore at Zen West. And next, we're going to be in Hedgesville, West Virginia at Sun and Moon uh, well, it's not the Sun and Moon Festival yet, is it? Well, it's, it's where the Sun and Moon Festival happens. Multiple. I don't know. I just show up and play. Multiple times. <laughs> I love it, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a, a scatterbrain. Yeah. I'm a drummer. This you know? is, yeah, yeah, this is going to be at Seven Moons Wellness Shop okay. at Unit 6, right next to okay. Seven Moons in Hedgesville, West Virginia. Cool. And then after that, on March 31st, I just got word from uh, Mr. Brandon Wright of Wright Live. And we are going to be playing at Granny's in Winchester, Virginia, March 31st. And that is going to be with uh, Cannon Hill and Six Gun Riot and D. Calhoun. D. Calhoun. This is an awesome lineup, guys. And this is definitely going to be worth checking out. So stay tuned. 
Check, it Check out. out American Dharma Band online. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. All those places. If you guys want to keep track and come out to some shows. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I've been Chris. I've been DJ. Love you guys.